APG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 346. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1508 in the Hyatt Regency Studios in Indianapolis, Indiana. Today's show was recorded on the 24th of October, 2018. In today's episode, severe turbulence causes 25 injuries on Aerolinius Argentinus flight, a rejected takeoff due to burst tires, a wing-walking rapper killed, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale. Here we go. Hold them, cowboy. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 346 is ready for pushback. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and answer your feedback. And here to help me with that, from her lakeside studio in South Carolina, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument-rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Glad to see you this afternoon, evening, and um, sorry, I'm just going to be um, handing in my notice. I had a large uh, windfall this morning, and I'm going to be quitting life and uh, traveling and buying lots of expensive So things. you won the lottery. Oh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you won't tell me. Can you be my friend? <laughs> She's already our friend, I have a lot of new friends today. And yeah, relatives. so I guess... Basically, uh, this is the last episode of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Sorry, guys. Just thought I'd get that out of the way to begin with. Okay. Well, that's good. Glad to see you all. Looking forward to a good show tonight. Yeah, we are too. Probably won't happen though. Um, From his studio in England, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Stephanie, will you do the honor of being my bride? <laughs> I've had several other marriage proposals today, too. Oh, damn. Oh, well, you I, guess, I guess I'll Take just... Take it under consideration. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll join the queue. I guess I'll, I'll just have to uh, be part of the show and carry on forevermore, Jeff. Yes, but maybe she'll buy us a really nice Class A motorhome. Oh, no, I won't have to rent one. With a built-in studio and lots of aisle microphones. That's right. Also joining us. From his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia. Barbecue master, bourbon, scotch, nope, none of that. Motorcycle rider, party boat skipper, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. Captain Dana. Hey guys, great to be back. Another fantastic episode, three forty-six. Looking forward to uh, some fun talk, and uh, of course, uh, those folks that are listening can't see the. Oh, hello, say hello to my little friend. Sorry, didn't put that on silent, but uh, we don't need to edit that out. It just adds to the ambiance. So, looking forward to another fun afternoon. 
Well, I have no idea what you're talking about, but uh, well, I took a moment to your... silence my phone as well. So, there. did you have a little friend there with you no. uh, that we're not seeing? On no. camera? <laughs> I have a little friend. Well, <laughs> sorry. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. That for those those that don't okay. know that, that's Tony Montana from Scarface. I, I didn't actually hear it at all, but whatever. I can't hear anything anymore. Hello, everyone. Great to see everybody again this week for uh, episode 346. And uh, I, uh, I'll i start because I don't usually start. I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm on a four-day trip, day three. And um, here we are recording 346. I was supposed to have a meetup yesterday in Buffalo, but my trip got screwed up on day one. I had to go and do a rescue flight up to Syracuse and then... Um, got stuck up there and uh that kind of messed up my rescuing my, people or planes uh rescuing people with a plane uh-huh. so we ferried an airplane up to syracuse because the md-90 was broken up there and they were waiting for uh, an airplane that they could fly to take everybody to atlanta and then we were delayed because um we were just about to push back and the maintenance people called us and said are the mechanics on board and i said nope nobody's on board except for the pilots and they said well don't leave yet because they're on their way and then half an hour 45 minutes an hour goes by and then finally they said well they're having trouble getting through security so go ahead and go so we you know got up there and then the mechanics made it up on the next revenue flight and then uh, they arrived and worked all night long on troubleshooting this uh problem with the airplane but they got it fixed sometime in the middle of the night and we uh, ended up flying it ferrying it back to atlanta uh yesterday morning and uh didn't arrive into buffalo until late afternoon so that kind of shot our meetup that i had planned with uh tiffany our apg librarian and but i did go to barbecue no dinosaur barbecue and uh uh joe was there and uh he said uh well actually wasn't there he knew that i was going to be in town and said hey where are you going um you know i'd like to meet up with you so uh, we met at dinosaur barbecue and he and his new fiance yay where's the applause noreen uh i mean like within i think like last week is when uh he proposed marriage to noreen and so they're a newly engaged couple and uh, met up with them and had a great time talking with them and eating great barbecue at dinosaur in buffalo there you have it that's my trip so far excellent yeah okay had a good so not as planned but sounds like it's been fun no. all the way. yeah worked out worked out so next time I'm, I'm in buffalo i will uh we'll we'll try it again but uh, that's the way it works sometimes, especially if you've made plans. Right, Dana? You make plans to do something, and then that's when you get like a broken airplane or rerouted or whatever. But, something uh, always happens when that happens. You have plans, then it's not going to happen. Yeah, I took full blame for that. So anyway, um, that's it for me. Uh, Steph, what have you been up to? Well, um, for those who really don't know what I was going on about at the very beginning of the show, there was a large um, lottery here in the United States yesterday. The Mega Millions hit like $1.6 billion, and the winner was here in South Carolina. 
Um, oh. Yeah, it was That's right. was not me. Oh, it was not you. One winning ticket in the entire country, about an hour and a half away from where I live. I was so close. And that was only a nine hundred and twenty-one million dollar. No, yeah, after tax cash payout. Yeah. yeah, I mean, how do you live? Not with that? worth it, really. <laughs> I don't even know why you play. So anyway, that was I did not win, but would have been nice. Uh, um, yeah, uh, I woke up this morning and turned on the TV, and they said they sold one winning ticket in South Carolina, and then I like almost couldn't look at the tickets. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> could be me, uh, and it clearly was not me. Anyway, uh, um, you can always dream, right? That's yeah. right. And what else has been going on? Had a lovely weekend up in the mountains, up in Asheville. Um, saw a community production of a Broadway show, Avenue Q. It has puppets, but it's not kid-friendly. And <laughs> I actually saw it on, uh, on when it was on Broadway as well. It's, it's very funny, very well done, very adult-themed. And uh, took a little drive up the Blue Ridge Parkway. We were going to eat at a uh, restaurant at an inn up there, but we got there and the restaurant had a two-hour wait for lunch. Or I brunch. know where you went. Mm-hmm. And then we said- Switzerland. What's that? Little Switzerland. Mm, Pisgah Inn. Pisgah Inn, yeah. It's yeah. in Little Switzerland. Yeah. yeah. So we took in the sights and then turned back around and went elsewhere for brunch in Asheville. And- um, Today, I was running a little bit late getting here. I am uh, participating in a 5K that's taking place on or near one of the runways at the Charlotte Douglas Airport this weekend. So I had to go by and pick up my race package. They gave us a nice, cute little uh, tote bag. There's a t-shirt that is not really very cute, but whatever, free t-shirts. So there you go. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, some bib numbers. So. That one's not mine. I have a couple. So of are them. you gonna are you gonna win this race? You know, I don't know how many people are running, but probably not. <laughs> oh. Well, I think we. You, I think you should try harder. Okay. And win it. Noted. Thanks. Okay. Appreciate your support. <laughs> sure. Slacker. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I, sh- I I should say, Steph, just finishing would be a win in my book. A five k. It's like yeah. 3.1 miles. I'm I don't think you're nice. the ideal motiv- motivational trainer. <laughs> I know. I, I'm terrible at that. I, <laughs> I obviously wasn't very motivating last episode when I, I was very insensitive to Dana's plight and his sickness. So uh, I'm true. sorry. I guess I'm just an ogre. Yeah. A, what plight? A wine-swilling ogre. A wine-swilling <laughs> ogre. Okay. Dana... Oh, Steph, are yeah. you, excuse me, uh, are yeah. you finished with uh, no, your that's, stuff? That's all I have going on. Okay. <laughs> Dana, what have you been up to? Ah, what have I been up to? I actually went to work. In I'm a glad weird, you're here, though. I'm glad you're wow. back and you're feeling better. In a weird, <laughs> fun type of way. Yes, you see my video is a little better. I've been sitting here working on that. So there's only so much you can do with this mug anyways. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, this uh, giant uh, box on hydraulic stilts, I got to sit in it and pretend that I was a pilot for a day. So I went into the uh, simulator because as an MD-88 pilot, um, which we fly, t- tend to fly at least three, on average, three legs a day, more like four or five legs if you're a junior like I am. Um, I haven't flown even one leg since September 1st. 
So every 90 days, you have to stay current. You have to have three takeoffs and landings. And uh, that is true in the general aviation world as it is in the commercial airline pilot world as it is in the corporate world. So if you're a pilot in the United States, you have to have three takeoff and landings. Well, I did not have that. I had two. I was close. And I certainly figured last week I had uh, two days of short call availability. That means that I am to be at the airport in roughly two hours, which I think I talked about last week. And uh, I was the first guy to go at 3 a.m. for a 12-hour call-out period. And first day passed. I said, okay, well, maybe the second day. Second day passed. Yep, they didn't use me. So they sent me to the box, and I did my three takeoffs and my three landings. Of course, they weren't all VFR. And they weren't easy, but it was, uh, you know, to be honest, it was the first time I've gone into the simulator and I was not the least bit stressed out because it was a non, it was really, it's not a check ride of any sorts. It's just a currency. So there was really, it's a non jeopardy unless I did something really stupid and really crazy and really dumb, which hopefully I've weighed all three of those. I think I did. the uh, instructor had never done a recency sim with an MD-88 crew, and uh, it's a very rare breed indeed. So I think there's going to be more that will be coming through um, issue because uh, a lot of uh, a lot of guys and girls, for that matter, that are not flying because uh, we are still shrinking a little bit and overstaffed and uh, aircraft utilization is down year over year, and, and pilot utilization is up. So uh, it's kind of like a double-edged sword there. So uh, that's what I did uh, yesterday. I enjoyed that uh, feeling of being back at work. However, <laughs> I wasn't anywhere near a uniform or anywhere near an airplane and uh, didn't talk to anybody else like flight attendants or passengers or uh, get to enjoy that environment. So I'm kind of still missing that. I'm looking forward to getting back in the air because um, I just really enjoy what I do. And then today I was dealing with my boat. And I, uh, I know I kind of alluded to it a little bit. Um, didn't talk a whole lot. You know, was part of the whole uh, thing that I was going through, and uh, one of the things I was going through. Um, but on the last day on the lake, on the last hour, heading back into the marina uh, the, of the last bit of the um, uh, summer, just after the APG um, uh, retreat, um, hit a rock or something underneath the water. Well, it took out the entire lower end of my engine or my drive. And uh, we were addressing that today. And my buddy that was out there let me borrow his trailer, went out on his boat because my boat is still actually in op uh, because of a little washer that they changed uh, from last year to this year on the prop. So it's uh, it's being ordered and going to be installed. But he went out to the area that I hit, and lo and behold, it's come down so much that the actual uh, pipe that they use, it's, it's about a 10-foot white, uh, uh, um, um, oh, my God, PVC. I was going to say CVP, but PVC piping um, that sticks out of the water to indicate where the um, underwater hazards are. Well, the one that's associated with that, which is not even that close to it, is actually broken. So there was an underwater hazard that I didn't know about that I went across and had no clue that it was there because it was the, the pipe was broken and they have a temporary white floating thing close. To so that's my luck. 
and uh, let's see, I had a car. I mentioned that car wreck. So uh, I'm okay. The car, not so much, but it's getting fixed too. So that's been my week. Been working on all those issues. Well, with all these crashes, it's perhaps a good job you haven't been flying. Yeah, well, they say three, right? Everything happens in three. So I had the the, uh, the uh, boat. Then I had my uh, townhouse, my uh, old house I lived in. That still has an investment property. It had an insurance claim because a water pipe blew out in it and uh, flooded downstairs hardwood floors. And then, of course, now my my truck when I was going to deliver the insurance truck. The actual time I was going to deliver the insurance check to my mechanic to fix the boat. That's when the accident happened in my truck. So, yeah, it's enough. No more. Okay, so enough. you got it out of the way. I got it out of the yeah. way. Good. So it's it's safe to fly if Dana's your captain. It is very safe, and I am very ready to be. <laughs> I'm. A, I want to go fly. I mean, but I, you know what? All right. Let me let me step back. I am not going to put in a yellow slip, as we know it at our airline, to go way out of my way to do that because uh, I, you know what's happening is. The seniority continues to march backwards, and uh, as evidence, next month I am working out of fourteen, no, uh, fifteen, no, fourteen days. I've got one day off. I work eight straight, one off, and another four straight right over Thanksgiving. It wasn't even now. You're saying you, you work? That means you're on call, though, right? You're not actually. I am on working. call, but you probably with, work. with all the open time they have during that time frame, I will be fine. There's a bunch of open time over like the the week of Thanksgiving, so correct. Yeah, and if I had bit a regular line and gone out and fl- flown for the week, I would have actually been almost as good off. Or be- you know, I would have been better off actually because then I could yeah. move things around, swap things, and get better trips. And now I'm just at the beck and call without anything I wanted next month. I'm missing my thirtieth high school anniversary uh, being in next month because of it. So, well, I hope that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving wherever you are. Probably Flint, Michigan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they have turkeys there, right? They're very, no. it's a very, it's very no, nice. No turkeys in Michigan. <laughs> You'll be the turkey. Just yeah, the, <laughs> the, the one, the one brew, the one brewery right there across the street from the hotel. Cause it's the only thing they'd eat is probably, will probably be closed or will not. Be uh, I'm sure they'll be open. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. That's all right. That's a good place. Well, I like that place actually. It's I do a, too. It's uh, their food is the actually red, quite good. Red something brewing. Yeah. Whatever. Red brew. So. But anyways, I can't I, I really, honestly, I am, and I'm not saying this in any negative way. I'm not complaining at all because uh, I've really, I've only flown five trips since what beginning in June and it's been, uh, it's been a nice break for change. You know, after all these years of pounding, pounding the pavement hard, it's been nice to kind of sit back and, and, uh, you know, hope they call me, but kind of hope that they don't call me. And uh, like today was perfect example. I needed to really to be off today and I was on call today, but there was really nothing they could have done with me because of my SIM yesterday. I had to have 19 hours off in base. And so that really only left them a couple hours. They could have given me anything and they just, they just couldn't muster anything. So it worked out. Excellent. Nick, what have you been up to, sir? Well, uh, I last flew just over a week ago. As I, you may recall, I, on the last show, I came home with a bit of a scratchy throat, uh, and I've not got any better, sadly. I've still got a bit of a scratchy throat, so if my voice gives out, um, I, I might have to drift off. But uh, no, I've been sitting at home, working away, um, 
uh, on plain tales mainly because uh, I've been busy trying to get some of those sorted. Uh, and um, just waiting for my trips to come around at the end of the month. I've got a uh, end of the month comes. I've got a um, uh, Washington and a couple of New Yorks, and you uh, know uh, all crammed up together. Apart from that, uh, nothing much at all, um, other than getting my three four six model ready for show number three four six, the best show we've ever done. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's, um, isn't that great? We it's love almost that. the same noise he made for the squirrels a few episodes back. Oh, really? I didn't realize that the, the, I mean, you the have to go. 4600 made the same noise as squirrels. No, you have to go and watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail where they're confronted by the little white rabbit. That's, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I know it well. That's where it Run away. <laughs> it's got sharp, pointy teeth. <laughs> So well, that's the one. Um, no, I'm I'm just sitting home, uh, you know, doing my thing and uh, trying to get better. Um, but I've got a few days still of, uh, you know, I got better. Yeah, <laughs> quite right. I'll try not to cough too much. <laughs> so, have you been like doing anything with meeting up with people in the community or anything? Oh, like you that? wanted me to cover that thing as well. I was supposed yeah. to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Nev. Um, Neville Bounds and the PTUK guys uh, have got the potential of uh, an interesting interview coming up. And since it's with a senior Air Force officer, um, they asked me if I'd be keen enough to go along and do this interview uh, on their behalf, waving the PTUK flag. Never was going to film it. Uh, and in order to do that, I had to review this gentleman's book, which uh, we, I needed to get hold of. So I, I met Nev uh, up at Heathrow. Uh, he handed over the book. And while we were there, um, of course, uh, we were there to uh, enjoy the company of some plane spotters, uh, keen APG listeners, uh, one and all. So, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of audio. Yeah, but before we play that, all right. have you not read the contract, Nick? Oh, we have a contract? Yeah, so HR I think HR minutes. forgot to send it to me. <laughs> HR doesn't forget. <laughs> oh, really? So oh. you're doing something for the PTUK and uh, we were not yeah, notified of this it, and didn't approve it? It's all right. I only got paid in kind. Okay. Uh, all right. We'll let, we'll let this one slide. Oh, uh, okay. Thanks. Yeah. I, I Just got next a, time. Uh, I got a Mercedes, beautiful uh, oh, Mercedes he, Formula he One. Yeah, yeah, he did get compensation, didn't he? Mm. Yeah, I did. All right. Like, uh, from all Neville, right. who happened to be up there doing some uh, filming. So mm. I, I kind of hinted, and he managed to organize one for me, which I will uh, pay him for. So it's uh, <laughs> not really a gift. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll we'll let this one slide. I think I would not. Oh, very I would not pay him for it. All right, right, so let's hear the let's hear the audio then. Hi, Jeff. This is uh, Nick out in the field. Actually, it looks like a field. No, it's a car park. Uh, we're in a car park, and uh, funny enough, it's attached to an airport, uh, and that airport happens to be Heathrow, and we're in what is uh, fondly called the. Academy. The Academy. What are we learning here? Mm, not a lot. 
watching a lot of aeroplanes come in and out. Nah, yeah, you are. And, and making some good records. Uh, what have you uh, got today? Uh, oh, a bit of everything, really. It's quite a varied, uh, nice variety of aircraft at Heathrow. Um, a few 350s around and 380s. Perhaps you and, should and some Boeing's as well. And some Boeing. Oh, okay. Perhaps you should introduce yourself so everyone in the uh, APG knows who you are. Yes, this is Philip Davis from Torquay, the tr- the plane spotter. Torquay. That's uh, not the old-fashioned movie. Oh, Torquays. Torquays? No, don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's one of my very obscure jokes. Um, so, uh, have you had a good time? Has it been worthwhile? Yes. Oh, definitely. I always enjoy day up here. Coming up here for 12, 13 hours a time. Um, and also the pleasure of meeting everybody again today, which is good. Always great with the community. And Brilliant. I think we should perhaps explain that the Academy is actually, um, it's a sort of a Heathrow development and skills place for their employees, but they have a kind of a fancy lean-to here where uh, people interested in spotting aircraft can get out of the sun and the weather and uh, can stand slightly elevated and uh, watch the machines go by. So pretty good view. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it could be a bit better, but uh, it's better than nothing at all. So uh, It is better than nothing. We'd like to be on top of uh, Queen's building, but it doesn't exist anymore. No, definitely. They were hoping to try and get a new, with all the new buildings there, uh, somewhere for us to go. Uh, a little bit better but in the middle of the action but uh, Heathrow don't seem to want to know us unfortunately. What a shame. And uh, who have we got here? We have Neil Unwarn. Hello APG. Hi Neil. Hello. And uh, is this one of your favourite haunts? I don't get down here as often as I'd like. Uh, It's a little bit of a trek for me with the traffic but I tend to come down every now and then to see what I've missed. Uh, Today challenging lots of backlit photos we'll have a lot of a uh, lot of difficult editing later on but it's been a, a great day really good time yeah it's not ideal is it we're kind of looking into the sun a bit being on the north side of the airport uh, we'd much rather be in adam spink's little hideout there stuck up on his pepper pot we definitely would uh, a south side viewing area would be excellent really uh, somewhere down the middle no lampposts no trees but uh, we can only dream about that, I think. You're quite right. Now, joining the spotters today, we've got the marvellous uh, Mr. Neville. Mr. Neville, how are you doing? Yeah, it's very good, isn't it? Weather's nice. Just the job. Shame we're on the easterly operations here at Heathrow, so we don't see quite as many planes close up as one would like. But uh, surprising amount of um, bin liner serviceability today actually I've noticed. And a few go-rounds I gather. Yes we had two this morning I mean obviously we're going to be blaming ATC for that um, but um, yes a couple of go-rounds that people were slow to clear the active as they say. And why is that do you think? Uh, because they can't be bothered uh, I think that's probably what's happened there and if they just you know got on with it and got off so that everybody could land it would be great. Wouldn't it? it would be I think it's because uh, they've closed off uh, Alpha 9 uh, must be a bit of a nightmare for people who suddenly pitch up and realise there's a big barrier in front of their turn-off. Uh, not that it's not on the ATIS, you understand, but it's probably so long, Adam, that uh, they can't be bothered to read it all. 
Dave, how are you? I'm very well, yes. I was just thinking about the uh, the fast exit being closed. It's probably on page 20 of the NOTAMs that are obviously garbage, according to our friends in America. Well, I, I happen to agree them with them on this, yeah. So is this something you do regularly? No, this I'm here because of fear of missing out, if I'm honest. I see how much fun you have at these meetups that I thought I'd better come along and just, uh, rather than sit at home wishing I was here, I'd rather come along and enjoy the conversation and the, uh, the views. And uh, it doesn't matter whether we see many aircraft because there's a lot of like-minded people here that have had a really good laugh and shared lots of their expertise about their various... Everyone's got a different interest in aviation as well, which makes it such a, an interesting place to come and meet up with people. Very true. Where is yours, Centre? Oh, well, I started off simming, and then I found uh, blogs online, and from there I found APG by, by complete accident. I was actually looking for cruise performance tables for 767s for my sim. That's how sad I am. And found uh, Captain Jeff on about episode, well, I think it was about 160, and I've been hooked ever since. So uh, it's been uh, a fantastic journey, and uh, it's brought me to meetups like this to meet lots of interesting people that I wouldn't have had a chance to. I was flying on Saturday with uh, a fellow APG member that I met through Slack, who's uh, building hours for his commercial licence and uh, we just meet up and uh, I'll give him a bit of gas money and we'll head off to France for lunch. So wouldn't have happened without APG, so well done, chaps. Brilliant, that's fantastic. I wouldn't mind going to lunch uh, in France. This is a man that goes to lunch in France very regularly. Hi, Pip. Hey, how are you doing, uh, Nick? Nice to see you. Well, uh, we got the names right this time. Yeah, well, it was Phil, that one over there, uh, who's invited us down to play the plane spotting game today. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the rules are, but I'm, I'm pretty certain I won. So, uh, What was your score? Um, I think I scored um, seven. <laughs> That's very good. Which is a winning uh, score. Uh, uh, <laughs> a, winning, a winning score? I think so, yeah. You'll have to clarify with Phil there. He's the expert, but uh, I definitely scored seven. Phil, we know, cheats. He, he sees an aeroplane on Flight Radar 24, and if you can see a dot on the end of his hugely highly powered binoculars, he calls that a spot, apparently. Yeah, so he says. I'm, I'm not certain those count, but uh, anyway, it's been fun. Nice to come down and see the chaps have a bit of lunch, which is always the the best bit uh, and uh, yeah lovely day for it as well absolutely well we missed uh for this chat graham who was here earlier our lovely uh, trafficker I, I don't know if he's gone off to work and uh who else was here in the jacket that was a- andrew yes that was andrew uh, andrew works for heathrow airport and uh, he uh, is over at t5 he does lots of interviews and research and that kind of stuff and then um for the rest of his job he works for bbc radio london as a studio manager oh well i never fascinating blokes amazing here you get here have i missed anybody out no that's it that's all. brilliant okay jeff that's it from a little group standing there on the edge of heathrow we're thinking of uh, starting up a drone and flying it what do you reckon anyway back to you in the studio cheers Ooh, that sounds painful. <laughs> I think that was the banana. <laughs> Neville's banana. Or that, was that you driving away and then hitting something with your <laughs> Audi? <laughs> no, it was uh, it was a Boeing, of course. Ah, uh, okay. oh, here he goes. So, 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 Pip won with a seven. Yeah, I'm not quite kind sure. Kind of a random score. I was thinking I would have come up with something in the hundreds or something. Well, you know, Pip, he doesn't like to exaggerate. 
<laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, it sounds was, like you all had a good time. Really nice to see everybody. It was uh, you know anytime you get a chance to get together with some listeners and uh, talk aviation, it's fun. So yeah. uh, and it was a lovely day there. So uh, no complaints. It was a very pleasant uh, few hours. Excellent. Nice. Well, I'm so glad that you were, had a chance to do that and you captured it on audio. Mm. And now I think we can continue to move on with the show here because we had a very a pregnant pause and a lull. And I think that means it's time for us to maybe to do the coffee fund. What do you think? Yeah, yeah let's do it. Definitely. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Jeff Smith singing the Java Jive. That is because we're going to talk about the coffee fund, which is your way to support the show financially. If you have the financial resources to do so and if you do uh, please check out the coffee fund and become part of our coffee fund cadre and since the last show there are a couple ways to do it one is the classic method uh, via paypal you can make a one-time contribution or a recurring donation and since the last show we have jonathan charlton brent brackhop janice zanders and carl lake Thank you all of you for using the Coffee Fund Classic method to support our show. We really do appreciate that. And the other way to do it is to become a patron of the show uh, via patreon.com. And we have two new producers. They are Christian Carlson and Ben Houghton or Houghton. And uh, again, uh, patrons, uh, you kind of a pledge a certain amount per, per episode. Uh, usually four, sometimes five per month. And uh, you can become part of the Coffee Fund Cadre. And if you want to uh, learn more about that, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Stand by for news. All right, let's start with our first item in the news folder, which is a no. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Actually, Jordan sent this in. Um, so Jordan is in Central California, and he sent us this news item because uh, this is kind of something that is uh, important to him because this happened uh, with a Air National Guard unit in his area. Uh, you may have heard of an exercise happening in Ukraine where a Air National Guard service member uh, from the California Air National Guard was in a, an airplane, a um, Ukrainian, what was it, an Su-27, I think? Yeah, Su-27B. And uh, he was taking a ride with the, the Ukrainian pilot. And I'm not sure what happened because it doesn't really tell us in this article, uh, but uh, they crashed. 
and both pilots were killed, the Ukrainian pilot and the California Air National Guard pilot, and his name, Lieutenant Colonel Seth Jethro Nering. And uh, they were, uh, he was in the California Air National Guard's 194th Fighter Squadron, and uh, the Ukrainian pilot was Colonel Ivan Petrenko, and they were doing a routine familiarization flight on October 16th. Again, uh, really doesn't say exactly how they got into a situation where the airplane crashed, but they did, and both pilots died, which is uh, a, a real shame. So um, our hearts and prayers, uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to the uh, people involved, their families, their friends, etc. Do you, Do we know anything else about this? Do any of you know? I've not heard anything what happened? about it. No, I, I think sources are going to be hard to find on this one, being uh, Ukrainian Air Force. Uh, so, um, yeah, they're not going to reveal very much until they know exactly what happened. And they're probably a little bit embarrassed about it since they had a, an American uh, pilot on board. Uh, yeah, not very nice. It was just a sing- single ship. It wasn't like a, they were doing like a one-on-one, 1v1 or a 2v2 or anything like that. It was uh, no, just the, uh, one the- airplane. Yeah, I think the uh, the USAF guy was probably just sitting in the back enjoying a uh, a trip in a different aircraft, uh, and I suspect uh, the Ukrainian uh, colonel was uh, showing uh, putting the aircraft through its paces to show him what it could do. Um, something went wrong. Yeah, or maybe the uh, Air Force guy goes, "What does this do?" No, just possibly. Uh, possibly. But the other problem, of course, is that uh, when you get into the back of a, of a different fighter, you're never very familiar with uh, the escape system. Um, you know, they, they can be uh, remarkably different in the way they operate and how to get them going. Uh, and that may have been a, a factor. But since neither of them got out, I suspect, uh, you know, that, what, that may not have been the case. But uh, yeah. Still, it, it always caused. I mean, I was offered trips uh, in all sorts of airplanes, and I very rarely took them up because uh, I was always just a little bit concerned that, particularly, um, you know, when when you've got a, another fighter pilot in your aircraft, and you're trying to show your aircraft off to its best ability. Um, you're not going to stay well within the envelope. You're going to take it to the edge of the envelope, and uh, there uh, lies a little more risk. Hmm. Interesting. I wasn't even thinking about it from that perspective. Oh, well, it's classic. I mean, it is a classic. No, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid. Jordan, uh, by the way, the the guy that sent in this um, news item is in our chat room, and he said it was called Operation Clear Skies, and it was a joint operation with NATO and the U.S., and uh, he said you can see more of this on Facebook if you look up the 144th Air National Guard page. Uh, Clear Sky Exercise is a multinational training event involving the United States, Belgium, Denmark, Estonia, Ukraine, Poland, the Netherlands, Romania, and the United Kingdom. Yeah. So the, you always, it's sad to say this, but, you know, the famous last words are always, well, let me show you something. Well, watch yeah. this, you know, and that's watch this, watch that's this. Never yeah. and, that's, you and, that's, and that's somebody just trying to show off. And that's just, that's just human nature. I think, well, you know, we don't know for sure. What no, happened. we, we yeah. don't, we it's don't speculation. So, so uh, if we find out what did happen, we'll certainly talk about it on our show. Um, you know, I'm going to jump to D because it kind of has, it's a military m- mishap and, at first, we didn't know what happened, and uh, they've done the final investigation of this 
um, incident, this accident, and they do know what happened. This uh, was the Air Force Thunderbird number four crash, fatal crash, uh, which happened uh, in uh, or near Creech Air Force Base in Nevada. Uh, they were doing some practicing um, for the show. And uh, Thunderbird number four, Major Stephen Cajun Del Bogno, um, ended up um, performing a maneuver. And they think what happened to him is that he uh, had a G loss of consciousness, or we called it G lock. And uh, he was number four. They were doing after the um, the bomb burst, the high bomb burst uh, maneuver, four ship crossover. Uh, number four pilot pulls up into a half loop, then flies down the show line inverted before pulling downward into a split S to drop into formation behind the lead aircraft. And uh, the report explains that in this particular occasion, Dobogno flew at a maximum of minus 2.06 G's while inverted. That just sounds painful to me just to think about uh, before immediately pulling into a peak of 8.56 G's in the split S maneuver. It's believed that this tr quick transition from strong negative to intense positive G's was too much for even the seasoned fighter pilot to handle. He lost consciousness for an estimated five seconds, which is a very long time. Uh, and uh, as the aircraft rocketed toward the ground, no attempt at ejection was registered by the aircraft systems and the aircraft impacted the ground at nearly 60 degrees, nose down 90 degrees of bank with a descent rate of nearly 40,000 feet per minute. So um, that's sad. Even the most conditioned you know, demonstration pilots uh, can succumb to uh, physiological. Sure. I mean, events. we're just not meant to pull that many G's. That's yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. What do you think, Nick? Um, have you ever experienced minus two to almost nine G's instantaneously? No, I have never been. Uh, I don't know. I can't think of many maneuvers you would you would do that. You know, almost all the time when you're fighting an aircraft, you're uh, maintaining positive G. Mm -hmm. Very rarely do you get a negative G. Of course, it's different when you're doing a display. Um, now, th those who don't normally uh, who don't know when you normally apply G progressively, you can uh, observe the symptoms uh, of the the loss of blood pressure. So, you'll start to. Uh, uh, gray out, get, lose your peripheral vision. Um, you'll uh, obviously feel, be feeling extremely heavy. Uh, you get a little bit dizzy. Um, then you can black out where the point where you're still conscious, but you have uh, lost use of your eyes because uh, the um, the optic nerve, uh, you have a positive pressure inside your eyeball and um, uh, the blood just can't uh, get in and register on the retina, so you lose the use of your vision, but you're still uh, you're still thinking. And at any point in, during that progression, you can relax the G and become fully conscious again. Um, but there's a thing called G lock, which is when you apply a very sharp uh, acceleration. And uh, the G's build on so quickly, your body doesn't really have time to prepare itself. But up here in your throat, where the uh, the veins come out, uh, they contract hard to um, preserve the blood pressure inside your head uh, because it obviously senses this enormously quick drop in blood pressure caused by the positive Gs. Uh, and it, but it will only do it for a very short time. It's just trying to reserve your, your mental functions. So you don't have any progression uh, in the symptoms. Uh, and then eventually this... this uh, um, 
physiological response uh, in in the uh, the veins uh, the stops the veins open uh, and the blood flow uh, drops uh, or the blood pressure in your in your brain drops dramatically and you go unconscious uh, you know in the click of a finger uh, and that's uh, basically what g lock is uh, and um, because the uh, the rate of which you drop unconscious is so quick it's uh, it, you have no chance to protect yourself against it and that is the danger and it's uh, it's a, I won't say relatively common but it has been the result of a, a lot of uh, or has resulted in a lot of air show accidents over the years I'm sorry to say now we've talked about on the show the system that is installed in some F-16s where there's a um, a system that automatically recovers the airplane um, under certain circumstances, but apparently they don't have this system installed in the Thunderbirds airplanes. And that may have saved this guy's life. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know how that exactly works. Uh, and I'm wondering if the reason they didn't have it was because they were concerned it might accidentally interfere with the control of the aircraft when they're close to the ground or pulling Gs in very close formation and that the aircraft might do something unexpected. Of course, in this case, the bloke was well away from everyone else and it might well have saved his life. Uh, and I have seen a HUD video of uh, it coming into um, effect uh, when guys doing combat and uh, save their lives because, um, you know, G-Lock can last for, uh, you know, can actually last for 10 to 15 seconds and take you a full 20 to 30 seconds to realize what's going on around you. Um, but uh, they apparently they're going to fit it uh, now. Do you know what the, uh, at least when I was in the Air Force, the, the airplane that had the highest G onset rate of any airplane in the U.S. Air Force inventory? You know what the airplane that was? No idea. F-16 maybe? T-37. Mm. Really? Wow. Well, because it didn't have any the, computers to kind of prevent that from prevent a high onset from happening. And if you just took that stick and snatched it, you could instantly put anybody out. Wow. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. You know, it couldn't do high sustained G loading like the F-16 or the F-15 or anything else. But it was like the, the onset, the rate was pretty high. So. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I'm sorry. Somebody was trying to say something. I was going to say it's been so long ago that you were flying. F-16 wasn't even in the air. Flying wasn't even built yet. Mm. No, it was. (laughs) Thank you very much. Okay. Moving on to B. Um, This is an update. Um, I don't remember talking about this original uh, incident, but... uh, the article from the West, a loud bang and unusual vibrations felt on a Qantas flight were caused by corrosion in the engine. And they, uh, this happened on the 20th of May, 2017, um, on an Airbus A380, two hours after takeoff. And it forced the uh, plane to return to Los Angeles, where it landed safely. Uh, Cabin crew members reported the bang and feeling vibrations, and some had seen flames and sparks. The captain told the passengers that uh, an engine had to be shut down, and they were returning to Los Angeles. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau investigation, released on Thursday Thursday of last week, I believe, found the in-flight engine shutdown was caused by corrosion from cleaning chemical residue from the most recent engine service. 
and the engine manufacturer Rolls-Royce advised the ATSB it has since taken safety actions as a result of the incident, including an overhaul of cleaning instructions. In other words, don't use that. What are they cleaning. using to clean the engines? If it, well, they, Windex. They put, it, they put it through a car wash, don't they? That's what I thought. <laughs> Just like any other. No. I don't know. Yeah, Windex. But whatever they do, they whatever they were doing, it was some strong was not, stuff. Yeah, cleaned off good. the gunk and then cleaned right through the uh, the metal. Yeah. Yes, it took the same. Ate, no, ate the uh, fan blades or something. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and aren't, aren't the fan blades composite, not metal? So it makes no. Some- I well, I don't. I guess it depends on the engine, but I think it's usually some kind of a uh, an alloy, alloy, uh, yeah. metal alloy, alloy composite something. I, I, I don't think it's composite. Well, the, uh, the big fan, the big front ones uh, can be composite, but most of them are, uh, are an alloy, and some yeah. of which are sort of a porcelain style thing. The little, the little ones that get to incredibly high temperatures uh, can be sort of grown from a single um, crystal and form a kind of porcelain uh, uh, material. So it allows them to withstand the enormous temperatures. Hmm. Nickel and, and titanium. some are made of. Quite often, yes. And some are made of tofu, I think. Tofu, yeah, and they're delicious. And very yes, healthy for you too. <laughs> yum, yum. If you like soybeans, <laughs> yes. Uh, Cypriot budget airline Cobalt. I've never heard of this airline. Um, succumbed to something. Uh, they they shut down. Uh, let's see. They uh, canceled flights from midnight Wednesday. According to a statement on its website, the carrier, which has operated flights in and out of Cyprus since 2016, including flying UK holidaymakers to the island, has suspended operations. And uh, they're looking for, uh, they failed to reach a deal with a potential new investor. And uh, so. Well, it's been a couple uh, of uh, those types of airlines recently. No? Yep. Yep. Sure. Uh, this one, one hasn't been going very long. No. Yeah. Really, uh, it, it formed after the dissolution of the uh, the nation's flag carrier, Cyprus Airways, um, gotcha. and flew out of Larnaca, uh, which is a place I've been to, where they, in the Phantom, where they used to say, uh, you, do, um, you do reheat, I'll go around. Okay, no problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, exactly, no problem. So they've only been going a couple of years, but uh, they, they've, you know, uh, they've, they've had problems. And I think, uh, like a lot of these uh airlines that try and compete with established low-cost carriers um you know they've had trouble um uh, you know just getting the fares down although uh, ryanair apparently stopped operating the route uh, in march so Hmm. maybe it's just not a profitable uh, route to begin with well there's a lot of holiday makers go out there but it is seasonal of course Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah All right, moving on to the incident of severe turbulence uh, near Rio Branco on October 18th, uh, which caused injuries to 15 passengers, eight of which were transported to a hospital for further checks after arrival in Buenos Aires. Uh, They were flying in South America deviating around thunderstorm cells when the aircraft encountered severe turbulence causing an altitude deviation of more than minus 700 feet and plus 1500 feet around about 1852 z so it was uh you know in the afternoon 
the ADSB transponder reported climb rates in excess of 2,200 feet per minute and sink rates in excess of 2,700 feet per minute. The captain subsequently reported 10 to 15 injuries on board the aircraft and requested medical services available upon arrival in Buenos Aires. Uh, the aircraft continued to Buenos Aires for a safety uh, safe landing about almost four hours later. Medical services already awaited the aircraft and treated the injured. Eight passengers were taken to a hospital. Uh, they said the uh, airplane was in uh, cruise flight when it encountered turbulence. So, and, th- and there are some pictures here in the uh, Aviation Herald article. And uh, really did a bunch of damage to the interior of the cabin. You can see ceiling panels um, buckled and broken and uh, all kinds of messes in the galleys and that kind of thing. I'm wondering why, you know, if you look at the, in the uh, Aviation Herald article, they have some uh, goes satellite um, imagery from around that time and the approximate position of the airplane and when they encountered the turbulence and there's some some uh, convective activity for sure which there always seems to be in that area of the world and uh, i'm just wondering why they didn't have people in their seats with the seatbelt light on and the mm, cabin you think probably crew, they you know, sitting down. actually did have people in their seats with a seatbelt sign on maybe. they probably did but uh, well maybe they did I, I i just kind of i guess assumed that so how many if it was a full flight, how many pass? 192 passengers. So you figure maybe 10% of people at any one time when you turn on the uh, fasten seatbelt sign don't actually put their seatbelt on. At least. There yeah. you go. There's your 10 to 15 people who, you know, if it's yeah. turbulent strong enough to buckle those uh, overhead panels, the ceiling panels, and uh, did quite a number on the galley, the stuff that was not secured there. Um, if you're not strapped into your seat, you're going to be bouncing around the cabin also. That's a good point because they don't mention in this article that there were any cabin crew injured. So they do not, but it, you know they don't say for certain who the uh, injured folks were. If it was just passengers or cabin crew, but this is pass. Oh yeah, yeah. they say passengers. So I'm assuming. Yeah, it looks like uh, it's a nasty kind of blind alley. I mean, there are obviously possibly some ways through between uh, the the heaviest returns there, but. It looks like the guy had uh, got into uh, a bit of a cul-de-sac and, uh, you know, uh, having said that, um, you know, he didn't, by that circle indicating his approximate position, it doesn't appear to be too close to a particular cell, but of course they do grow and the one that slightly later on, there's a cell, big cell, they're just where uh, he was, so I suspect that might have been underneath him or something. But uh, it's uh, it, it's a, a continual problem. We fly around uh, in a very hostile environment, and people don't realize it and treat uh, an aircraft sometimes as they would if they climbed on a bus. Um, so uh, no, uh, it can be uh, it can be difficult um, keep keeping in smooth air sometimes when you're faced by a complete ring of thunderstorms like that. And uh, we'll hear more about that sort of thing in today's plane tale. And, you know, the one thing is, is that, you know, like what we combat 
his uh, professional pilots every day of the week that we're at work and in just in general, I guess, um, is complacency. People are just lulled into a complete feeling that nothing could ever happen to them. Even, you know, they've been flying in the, I've been a passenger for 30 years in, in the sky and I feel occasional light bump here and there. It can't be anything worse than that. You know, I, I know what turbulence is and lo and behold, that person's sitting there and, and I think that, you know, nothing can ever happen to them and boom, you get you go through severe turbulence. Now we as, as, as crew members, pilots, um, we can't always predict every single thing that's out there, but, you know, looking at that radar return, I agree with Jeff and I agree with you, Nick, that more than likely if, if I'm flying out there uh, and seeing that out there, I, I'm probably going to have the seatbelt sign on as well, but, you know, people just have become completely complacent and just want to do things the way they want to do it and thus the litigious society we live in here especially in the states i mean if we have this don't have the seatbelt sign on that happened you know we'd be held responsible my other thing is why did they fly for so long if they have so many injured people on yeah. the aircraft i don't know that area of the world very well i don't know if there was nowhere else that was closer to go it's hard to um, tell from the uh, satellite images but i'm guessing probably somewhere over brazil Mm-hmm. I think it would depend entirely yeah. on how severe the injuries yeah. were yeah, and what uh, suitable hospital arrangements could be made at diversion. So it might well have been better to carry on to a big city uh, and get everyone to a decent hospital there. And certainly, you know, I don't know if they have something like we have, like SATMD, where they could consult. Maybe they consult through their their company, through their dispatch, and, you know, made a collective decision. So, you know, it's just the thing that just struck me a little bit odd that they flew for so long. But then again, yeah, you are over the Amazon jungle. There's probably not a whole lot of suitable places to go. Yeah, I imagine there's probably still a few that are closer than Buenos Aires, but I think Nick brings up the appropriate point there that it just depends on the severity of the injuries. So. But we don't know any of that information either, so just guesses. And they're just they're just passengers. Yeah, yeah they're just they're, it's like you know, it's no big deal. Self loading <laughs> cargo. It's fine. I think mostly economy class, so <laughs> whatever. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, please don't <laughs> please don't send me any evil email. <laughs> okay, bad man. Yeah, I'm a bad man. Speaking of bad man. So let's talk about this next item here. A Southwest Airlines flight from Los Angeles to Dallas. A man who admitted to using methamphetamines. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit methamphetamines. Yes, uh, the day prior to travel. (laughs) And, and to overdosing on heroin two days before that, says God was speaking to him on flight 859. His God apparently is not part of the Me Too movement because he proceeded to lean closer to her and put his arm over her armrest and onto her leg and then play footsie. He also kept pulling on her sweater, asking her to go out after the flight and uh, if she was staying alone in her hotel room. This is his seat. Yes, very comfortable situation Mm -hmm. for this young lady. Uh, She changed seats. Whoa, really? With the help of a flight attendant. And she said he uh, he tried going over to her with a drink. Um, Finally, uh, the pilot 
said that that's enough. They uh, diverted the flight to Albuquerque. Uh, in the man statement, he claimed that they were just watching videos on her computer and he thought she was fl- flirting with him. He faces felony charges for interfering, interfering with flight crew and misdemeanor assault for interfering with the behavior of civilized society. Oh, I like that one. I do, too. <laughs> I think that's great. I think I could slap that on a lot of people uh-huh. interfering, uh, interfering with the behavior of civilized society. How does civilized society behave? I'm just curious. Is there a set of rules? For civilized. It? it might be open to interpretation. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Because I just want to check that rule book. I've got a, I'm a bit worried now. <laughs> well, you're. I think you're okay, Nick. Oh, fair. Um, I think actually we're all in tr- in trouble there. So just yeah, we're all in the same boat together. Well, you know, to a, like a lower extent or level, lower level, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so um, hmm, I don't really know what to say about that one. Anything else to say about that? Also, no, I take issue with the rest of the article, but we don't need to get into all of that. We fly no. a complete cross-section of society, and mm-hmm. uh, we get the good and the bad and the ugly. Yep, and the pretty. That is so true. And the pretty. <laughs> Apparently, this guy part of the- thought very much so. She's real pretty. Yeah. She's got to want me. Not. Yeah. So we'll put the uh, the rest of the story in the show notes, and you can... Go into a little bit more depth if you'd like. Trust me, though, you don't want to. (laughs) Gee, the world's largest amphibious aircraft, the AVIC AG-600 Kunlong, completed its maiden water uh, flight. Let's see. Oh, maiden waterborne takeoff and landing today in China. Uh, I think we talked about this uh, amphibian on an earlier episode and the plans for it and uh, as I said, they just uh, completed their first uh, takeoff and landing, and it's a very large amphibian airplane, and there is a nice YouTube video of the entire event, and that'll be in the show notes for you. It's a great-looking machine. I love the idea. and uh, I, I do, too. There's a lot of places where they haven't got the money or the country's too big to build uh, airports everywhere, but they often have a lot of uh, potential landing spots for uh, a decent flying boat. And this kind of looks like a flying boat Hercules, if you can possibly imagine that. So uh, I, I think it's going to have a great uh, deal of use in a lot of countries. Uh, and I applaud these guys for uh, progressing with this and getting it able and look brilliant. Yeah, when everybody is kind of focusing on supersonic and all these other kind of new technologies, it's kind of cool to see a country focusing on something a little bit retro. Absolutely. Definitely stylish still, too. Yeah. 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 Speaking of stylish... What a beautiful airplane. This Virgin Atlantic jet doing 250 miles per hour and flying at 3,200 3, feet approaching Heathrow. It was probably doing 250 knots, actually, I would guess, but whatever. Yeah. Um, the 787-9 Dreamliner, which can carry up to 264 passengers, was flying over residential streets, which makes it seem even more scary, over... Uh, Streets north of Clapham Common? Clapham Common, yes. That's, uh, that's a, bit of, a bit of grass in the middle of London. Oh, okay. Well, it came within 10 feet of crashing into a drone, according to the mail. Well, that's close, uh, but it is yes. according to the mail. Yes, and I think that was uh, the estimate by one of the pilots. 
they saw something, they almost hit something, and they uh, estimated that it was like within 10 feet of being ingested into the engine. Well, that's pretty damn close. Yep. Virgin Atlantic confirmed the incident and called for tighter rules on drones. Yes, please. Yeah. So in this case, I don't think it was a plastic bag. No. No, it sounds a little more serious than that. It does remind everyone that drone operators are only permitted to fly below 400 feet and not near an airport. Right. Now, I don't know. Do you think this was as Clapham, 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 Commons, um, more than five miles away from Heathrow? Uh, Yeah, it probably is. Um, So that would be okay. But of course. But they were obviously above 400 feet. Yeah, exactly. And there are all sorts of other rules and regulations about flying over um, populated areas and uh, residential areas that you must also obey. So I don't think this guy was uh, adhering to the rules in any form or manner. And I would recommend to anyone who uh, considers flying a drone, and I fly a drone, um, to get the Nats Drone Assist app in the UK, which is a free app by produced by the National Air Traffic Service. And uh, it will give you all sorts of information about your location and what restrictions there might be in flying your drone. So you can just, uh, it's a great map style app that um, shows you uh, your your position and uh, your proximity to any areas where you're prohibited or you're advised not to fly. So... Yeah, use them. They're, they're simply used. You can also log a flight in there so that other users uh, can, uh, if they're flying a drone as well, you're less likely to get a drone-on-drone collision. So there's one here. Like, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, let alone a drone on airplane. Yeah, there's a, sorry, a similar sorry. one here in the U.S. I have not used it. It's called Before You Fly from the FAA, but it's the letter B as in Bravo, the number four, and then U as in uniform and fly. So what, a little black the, fly? Yeah, a little picture of a fly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of what a lot of okay. drones sound like, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it sounds, it, I think it's a pretty similar type of app. So if you're a drone operator, yeah. um, I'm pretty sure it's free. Yeah, free download and um, App Store and uh, Google Play Store. So no excuse. Yeah. Not so the, the tools are out there for any responsible uh, drone pilot to make sure they adhere to the rules. But, of course, sadly, not everyone is a responsible drone pilot. Yeah, I think the people that usually are involved in these incidents are the ones that are completely clueless or or they just don't care. Yeah. Or a combination. Deliberately doing yeah. it, trying to get a, 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 you know, a unique shot of uh, mm-hmm. a, a, their drone crashing into a, an airliner. Yeah. Not, not that I ever bring up anything unusual in my comments, but you know what this really sounds a lot like? The gun debate here in the United States. Because you're going to have people that are just going to go out there and do what they want to do, whether it's legal or not. Okay. So you can take the, you can make the, uh, give the people that are responsible people the licenses and the certifications to fly these drones. And they're going to be the ones that are certain, you know, that are responsible. It's people that don't have the certifications, that don't have the, uh, um, license to fly the drones or, or know how to operate them legally that are going to be the people that are going to be the biggest threat to the aviation world. And, you know, how do you, how do you combat that? How do you, how do you regulate that? I mean, it, it's hard to track down somebody in the first place. 
if they're certified, if they're not certified at all, then how do you track them down? Well, yeah, it is possible because it's fairly obvious. People hear drones. They see people with the controllers. They know what they're doing. Um, and any policeman walking around can walk up to him and say, you know, what are you doing and where are you flying your drone? Uh, whereas if you're if you're in a place where you can carry a weapon all the time, that's not necessarily going to happen. And you're only going to be questioned if you pull it out, presumably, and wave it around, said the actress to the bishop. Well, <laughs> I, I do see the uh, I do I do see the comparison, though. I, I, I do agree. It seems like the the rules that are made, um, the law abiding citizens are the ones that are going to adhere to the rules. And it's the ones that have no regard for legal regulations uh, that are going to be the ones that are going to, you know, bust those rules. Sure. And, and, and how do we, and how do we, you know, and many of those have no idea that there are even rules out there. You know, they just go to the store to buy their drone and they don't bother looking at any of the, the, uh, the, the literature that comes with it as far as regulations and registering and all that kind of stuff. And they just go up there and fly away. Yeah, and, and that's exactly my point. Is how do you, how do you enforce that? Yeah, and I think that's something that the uh, drone industry is is struggling with. You know, I don't know if they've determined exactly how to, you know, fight that. That's something that we'll have to figure out on a future episode, I believe. Hey, Steph, do you yeah. want to take this next one? Yeah, are we on to uh, Jay? Sorry, I had to. Uh, we're doing I actually. Oh shoot! Hold on. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, I do want to take this one. I'm sorry. I okay. Good. Half a second there. This is a, uh, a a positive one. Yeah, this is this is good news. So uh, it has to do with our neighbors to the north, Canada, and their first female commercial pilot. Uh, this is from CBC, so Canadian Broadcast Corporation, I think. Um, Liz will probably correct me if I got that incorrect. Anyway, uh, in 1973, uh, Rosella Bjornsson became the first woman in Canada to be hired as a commercial airline pilot, and. Uh, apparently once a kind of humorous story, she was landing the plane in Calgary and was um, mistaken for a misbehaving stewardess when she radioed in. Oops. Um, but that was back in 1974. And at the time she was the only woman in North America working as a commercial pilot. I'm not sure about that, to be honest, but we'll fact check that later. Please don't hold that against us in our 50% uh, accuracy. If it's not correct. <laughs> that's a CBC that had that wrong. Yes. I yes. Think, maybe. But that's wrong. <laughs> So um, anyway, this is good news because on Thursday, she's going to receive the Alberta Order of Excellence in a ceremony at Government House, an award honoring her achievements in the industry and a lifetime spent advocating for the advancement of women in aviation. Um, she's now 71 years old. She was, as we said, the first uh, woman hired as a commercial pilot on a North American airline and the first female member of the Canadian Airline Pilots Association International. Um sounds like it's been a part of her life for a long time. Um, she knew she wanted to be a professional pilot way back in the early 50s when she was a little girl. Her father was a pilot in the Second World War, and um, she would fly around with him in their 170, or Cessna 170 near their family farm. So lots of in good information about her life in this uh, story, and I think it'll be in the show notes. for It will. And yeah, she was a, a part part of a successful lobby effort to change Transport Canada regulations to allow female commercial pilots to continue flying while pregnant. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah, interestingly, so. there's a lot of different 
rules and regulations about that all over the world still. So while it is possible to continue flying while pregnant, there's different um, uh, rules or guidelines in various countries concerning how long you can continue to fly during your pregnancy. So That's interesting. We mm-hmm. won't let, uh, I think we'll let our cabin crew, and I don't know if there's a different rule for our pilots, to fly once they know they're pregnant. And uh, the raison d'etre around that is because, of course, the increased levels of uh, radiation uh, you encounter uh, during, uh, you know, flying an airliner. And they're concerned that there hasn't been sufficient investigation done into its effect on a growing fetus. Well, that is not the case here in the United States. I forget exactly how many weeks, um, but definitely into the third trimester. Yeah, I've seen flight attendants that are definitely (laughs) pregnant. Yeah. All right. No, no, Steph, I'm not pregnant. That's just my oh, really my beer Sorry. belly. Yeah. I feel very embarrassed now for having brought that up. Yeah, you should. In mouth and turn around in shame. Um. Well, yeah. So as you start eating pickles and ice cream in the middle of the night, <laughs> that's just his normal behavior. Oh, oh fair enough. so as uh, Steph said uh, this article will be in the show notes thank you Liz for um, making us aware of it and um, it's still better than being the only one but young women don't realize that aviation is a career option this is a quote from her she wishes they would and the last uh, sentence in the article it's a wonderful life don't you like her? well of course I like her she's a peach I agree sentiment that everyone here echoes. Yes. No, I don't want any women in my cockpit. No, I'm like it. I'm like it. Really? <laughs> oh, uh, send your, Come send on. Your I was one angry say. emails to Dana, Dana, Dana at airlinepilot.com. Only, really only kidding. <laughs> yeah, we I know. Think, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. This is an interesting one, I think. Um, Malaysian B737-800 at Shanghai on October 21st, rejected a takeoff due to burst tires. They were departing from Shanghai Pudong to Kuala Lumpur, and they were accelerating for takeoff on 3-5 right when the crew rejected takeoff at high speed due to both left main tires bursting with pieces of the tires penetrating the fuselage. The aircraft slowed safely and vacated the runway via a high-speed turnoff. About 5,900 feet down the runway, it stopped. Emergency services foamed the landing gear. The aircraft sustained substantial data. And we'll have the link to this in the show notes, and you can see the damage and the shredded, literally shredded tires on the left main gear. Um, Now, I don't know what the policy is for Acme Red, but for Acme... Uh, we are not to, uh, we are advised not to reject a takeoff for a blown tire, but you know, two main gear tires bursting like that and hitting the fuselage, you know, that, that might be a, an interesting situation to experience. I don't know. Oh yeah. I mean, that, that we have exactly the same policy. Uh, we're not expect, but I think they would normally, um, put that area in the high speed rejection. Now, the fact that these guys stop so easily, I'm, I'm actually in my high speed 
uh, that actually quote a figure. So, uh, you know, one man's high speed is not necessarily another man's. Uh, mm-hmm. But, of course, the problem is that, uh, you know, we if you try and reject takeoff, you're um, relying on those tires and brakes to stop you. And if two of them are disintegrated, you're going to uh, slow a lot uh, less quickly. And you might overrun the runway, and that's the real danger of rejecting for tires blowing up. Uh, and um, the Airbus surface philosophy um, says that experience has shown rejected takeoffs can be hazardous, even if correct procedures are followed. Some factors that can detract from a successful rejected takeoff are as follows, and the very first one is tire damage. So, yeah, we have got the same thing. So uh, I think these guys um, uh, obviously did a good job because they did stop in time. It didn't sound like they got, got close to the end of the runway. They only went 5,100 feet down it. So I'm suspecting that they actually it would have been perhaps what we would have called a slow speed abort, so below 100 knots. So. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too because they didn't use up that much runway. Uh, and I would imagine they would have been pretty heavy uh, going from China to Malaysia. So, yeah, I, I, how would you know that you've blown both tires? What type of indication that you have penetration into the fuselage and the wing? Oh, you wouldn't know that part, would you? No, uh, no, you wouldn't. That so how, yeah. that, that's 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 the thing that's got me. Is how do you know? I mean, uh, well, you don't, do you? You don't. You really reject, don't. You don't reject for for the airframe damage because you don't know it's occurred. You reject for the the bangs and the fact that the airplane's now rumbling. And, uh, you know, your acceleration has slowed. And uh, you, if you've got indications of tire pressure, they probably uh, pinged on to uh, show that you've got uh, tire problems. And perhaps with both mains blown on that one side, they may have had some difficulty with directional control. Yeah, um, yeah that's, that's true. I didn't think of that. Do you get indication for specific tires, which uh, tires have lost air pressure? Yeah, and when we take off, we have the wheels page come is there, and uh, yeah, they they've got each uh, each tire, each individual, individual tire. tire has its own pressure gauge, so we would know. But, uh, yeah, just like the uh, just like the Mad Dog. Yeah, my exactly. car does. We don't, exactly. we don't we don't we don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> just being sarcastic. <laughs> oh, you mean you what? You don't have pressure gauges? No, um, no, we no, don't. No. Tire temperature, wheel brake it's temperatures. A di- it's a dinosaur. We do have brake temperatures. Oh, barely. Okay. Yeah, what is it? Hot, we do. Cold. <laughs> what is it? It's a row of row of Use, use too much brake on landing. That's what it it's says. a smiley face and a frowny face. Yeah. Thumbs up or a thumbs down. <laughs> no, it actually is a gauge. It. We can t- actually tell the temperature of the brakes uh, in in Celsius. Uh, and there's a little light associated with when they go into the overheat range, and et cetera. So, but the tire pressure, no, we don't have tire pressure. Okay. But, uh, nope. yeah. But I mean, uh, in the sim, I've, I've had it and, uh, it, it's funnily enough, the sim made it sound just like an engine failure. It goes boom. Uh, and, uh, so I thought, well, oh, I think that's probably an engine. So I stopped and the guy goes, why did you stop? And I said, well, I had a funny noise. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing about like an engine failure. That's the thing that. about a, a tire failure is that um, it you're not really sure exactly what it, and it feels not very good, and you think it's a pretty serious thing. But they tell, at least at Acme, they tell us don't reject a takeoff for um, 
a tire failure. We have to do some pretty yeah. quick thinking in that uh, moment. Yeah, you do. Some pretty quick scanning under- of instruments, see what's going on, right. you know. And, so and if you don't know, and stuff. you're yeah. not sure it can fly, then you just, okay, we'll reject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I can't, it's hard to, for me to blame them for doing this, no. actually. Not with both, no, you- both tires on that side. And- yeah. No, I would have thought that had been a fair amount of vibration. I, I'm wondering why both blue um you know tires know. normally blow because uh, they buy the hit debris or um they've got overheated uh, so i'm just wondering if they'd let them get hot excessively hot during the taxi out but they have to get extremely hot for them to deflate and then they mm-hmm. usually just deflate because the uh, fuse plugs blow and just let the air out before the tires explode but these look like they've exploded i mean they really do look <laughs> they could completely show up pass. yeah huh I, I don't know interesting mm-hmm. situation well if we even if we don't ever find out any more about it, it is it is nice for the uh just the thought exercise of trying to figure out what you would do in this situation. It's just nice mm-hmm. to know if I'm presented with this or something similar, what might that entail? What might it sound like? What might, might it look like? And what would I do? So, yeah. Yep. yeah. Good point. And of course, if you continue the takeoff, knowing that you have some kind of an issue with your tires, then you have to remember to go, okay, positive rate. Nope. Don't that raise right, the gear. Right, leave, yeah. <laughs> leave, the, leave the gear down. Such a, yeah, uh, kind of, Muscle right, memory right. function, too. Yeah. Yep, it is. Okay, uh, moving on. Kay, uh, Sean writes in, uh, you know, we talked about, I think last episode, mm-hmm. we were talking about uh, cockpit voice recorders and the fact that yes. that flight from wherever, the t- Dubai to, no. No, it was from India, India or from. Somewhere in India, and they were heading to um, Trichy, India. They were heading to Dubai, they, I think. They, they, they diverted to Bombay, didn't they? Yes. And then they, I think they were airborne for um, almost four hours. And the cockpit voice recorder was an older one. It was recorded over. I wish the boys had um, hit the wall after takeoff. Is that yes. the one? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's them. Yeah. yeah. So we were wondering um, what on earth happened that made them hit the wall. Of course, nobody really knows because the cockpit voice yeah. recorder had been over-recorded. Yeah, hopefully we'll learn something from the flight data recorder. But anyway, Sean says, just a heads up, the National Transportation Safety Board just recommended that cockpit voice recorders be upgraded to a minimum storage of 25 hours of recording up from the previous requirement of two hours. Very likely the FAA will approve. And he included a PDF from the NTSB regarding the safety recommendation report. Now, as we all know, the NTSB um, recommends things. The FAA is the one that actually has to act upon them and make them a regulation. So we're hoping that you know they'll they'll uh, take into account all the arguments that the NTSB makes regarding all of them. They have a list of all these different incidents and accidents that occurred that would have really been helpful if they had a cockpit voice recorder recording for longer than the 30 minutes or two hours even uh, for and a recent incident um, in uh, a point um, made was the Canadian, the air Canada um, that almost landed on in San Francisco on four airplanes on a active taxiway. And uh, they didn't, pull the cockpit voice recorder data until, I don't know, maybe 24 hours after the incident. And of course, by then the uh, 
everything had been recorded over and it would have been nice to hear what the conversation was in the cockpit uh, leading up to that incident, but uh, they didn't have that. So they're saying that uh, they want 25 hours, uh, and but they want it uh, only on new aircraft produced after 2021. So it won't affect any of the current aircraft that are flying, but only new aircraft built after 2021, 1st of January, which I think is a little bit of a shame because uh, it, it surely it's uh, you know a relatively simple modification. But since particularly since a lot of CBRs are now um, solid state, just to um, pull out the you know, memory chip and add a bigger one. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? I, I'm... I'm I'm usually the naysayer of the group, and I, th- I actually think this is an excellent idea. Um, yeah. There's so much that's been lost over the years that really could have helped to either, def- in in a lot of cases, defend the crew. Right? Could could have uh, oh, validated absolutely. what they were yeah. saying, and 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 not uh, you know, <laughs> they're always quick to to point the finger at the crew and you know crew error. So sometimes uh, this. This could be a, a, a tool of, of positive uh, reinforcement for the crews or, or, you know, it could actually be, um, you know, a, a negative uh, end of it, too. But I'm trying to take a look at the positive side. So I, I would I would support yeah. this 100 percent. And in the opening paragraph here, if I'm reading this correctly, um, it says that they uh, new aircraft um, equipped with the 25 hour recording capability. But, and also to retrofit yes. the CVRs and existing aircraft required to have flight recorders. So oh, it looks okay. like they want to uh, record uh, all the airplanes out there with uh. the newer ones. But again, as, we see, as I said, um, the NTSB recommends, but the FAA doesn't always agree and follow through and make it a regulation. So we'll see what happens. Um, LaGuardia, that's an interesting place to fly. It's very crowded. The uh, taxiways, Dana, right? Oh, yeah. They get uh, very close uh, at certain points, especially when you're curving around that double golf, uh, double hotel area where uh, you're uh, you're making that turn from uh, east-west to a uh, north-south um, area, roughly. Um, and uh, sometimes these taxiways start kind of converging together, and apparently an Air Canada Airbus and uh, an American Eagle uh, RJ uh, 175, I believe. Is that right? Um, I'm trying to re- see on this article which uh, it would, it would have to be a pretty tall RJ to hit the end of the. It was, it was one. It was like either 175, 195, 170, 190, yeah. whatever. It's one of those two, um, but it doesn't say in the yeah. actual article, and I forget. But uh, anyway, they uh, the the Air Canada jet was stationary on a taxiway and the uh, Embraer regional jet uh, ended up getting a little bit too close to the wingtip of the uh, Airbus and the, uh, they, they collided and uh, which is unfortunate, but nobody got hurt. And uh, I think both airplanes were out of service for a bit while they made repairs. You know, and, and I have to say as a new captain, I'm pretty happy. I don't have to fly into that airport because that place is just a, yeah, I, I like mess. flying in and into that airport, but once you get on the ground, it's like crazy. Yeah, that, it's not. That, that's that's better said, Jeff. I mean, I don't <laughs> mind flying. I don't mind flying anywhere, but the operations in in Laguardia are just knocking futs. Yes, 
Yes, I don't. That aspect I do not miss. I have to say. And then uh, finally, <laughs> this is the really crazy item in our news folder. Uh, a Canadian rapper dies after falling off an airplane wing in a failed stunt in British Columbia. Uh, I'm, I'm not into rappers, so I don't recognize John James McCurry. Uh, but anyway, he fell to his death on Saturday, October 20th in BC while performing a stunt that involved rapping while walking on the wing of a plane. Uh, he's 34 or he was 34 years old, fell to his death uh, while performing a stunt that involved rapping while walking on the wing of a plane was a, quote, beacon of light to follow your dreams, his management team says. Uh, he was, uh, they were filming a project that he had been working on for months. Uh, he trained intensively for the stunt. However, as John got further out onto the wing of the plane, it caused a small Cessna, it doesn't say what type of Cessna, to go into a downward spiral that the pilot couldn't correct. And uh, the uh, rapper held on to the wing until it was too late, and by the time he let go, he didn't have time to pull his chute, according to the story. He impacted and died instantly. Uh, the team said that the plane and pilot landed safely, I guess after the guy let go of the wing. Um, so, not sure exactly. They say that he did a lot of intensive training for this, but I wonder if doing the practices and everything for this, if the pilot had any idea that this guy was going to go that far out on the wing uh, and the aerodynamics and physics of this whole thing uh, perhaps uh, was not well thought out. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. This is a weird, weird story, but it is. I mean, in my experience, the only aircraft I've ever seen wing walkers on have been all biplanes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which mm -hmm. have a lot of controllability and a lot of stability. Um, and, but even they don't usually go out on the wings. Mind you, I've seen stunts. Uh, um, what's that fantastic old movie with uh, Robert Redford um, about barnstormers where they've got some of the most amazing actual stunts of people climbing out onto the wings, walking along and on the top. Um, changing uh, from the top of one wing to the bottom of an adjacent airplane. Waldo, the amazing Waldo. Come on, guys. This is not ringing any bells for me, but I'm no, sure Micah someone or someone else in the, in the chat, chat room is room, going to help me. pipe up and the let us know. Come on, chat room. Help us out. Waldo Pepper. I think that's what it's called, the amazing Waldo Pepper. Anyway, um, yeah, if you haven't seen it and you want to see some of the best flying stunts you've ever seen, uh, you've got to see that movie. I mean, it's an absolute mm -hmm. classic. So please make it out of it and, and watch it. Um, and, you know, <laughs> remarkable things. Blake flying a biplane down a, a main street, you know, and he's literally feet from the buildings either side. It's superb. The Great Waldo Pepper, Rebecca says. Thank you, as does Owen. The Great Waldo Pepper. Go watch it. It's a good movie. You know, I, in all honesty, I mean, Cessna, the Cessna product is not my favorite product out there for general aviation. It's because it, it's inherently in itself, I think, a, a pretty unstable platform, especially if you're doing uh, more like instrument uh, pro uh, approaches and training 
Um, also, it's easily spun. Um, it's what I use to do my spin training as a CFI, by the way, I could have knew that. Um, anyways, uh, the, 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 the thing to me is that I used to fly parachute jumpers out of 182s and I, you know, obviously can never tell you how it would feel from a person to be on the top of the wing, walking along the wing. But I can tell you from experience with having a massive CG shift with everybody getting off, off the aircraft at the same time and also having actual jumpers hanging on the, the wing spar on the 182, you know, you get that mm-hmm. wing spar that goes up from the side of the airplane. I've, I've done it. <laughs> um, I have personally felt the aircraft extremely pulling extremely in the direction and actually it was in the right side of the airplane so pulling heavily to the right so i can see where that if if he's creating that much of a disturbance on the airflow of course obviously he's on top of the wing um i can see where his effect the effectiveness could possibly if uh be uh of the ailerons being interrupted uh, by the airflow over the top of the wing being uh, disturbed by him being there. So not the smartest thing, I think. Um, but then again, that's why we have the Darwin Awards. So, yeah. I'm wondering if maybe when they practiced this, if they did, uh, that the wrapper stayed very close to the center line of the airplane and then yeah, maybe it, he decided to kind of like, oh, I'm going to go a little, a little farther out just to kind of mix it up a little let's bit. Get some good footage. Get some yeah, really good footage, really cool. and and you know, and, and from my experience, having that weight out there on the spar, you know, it's a, that's a good distance out there. I mean, it's probably a good what four, maybe five feet out. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're yeah. all the way out on the edge of the yeah, I mean, they, they would hang out there, and it's like get you off. Can get, I mean, you can get two or three people out there. You can, and yeah. so it, it it's it's quite a bit of weight and quite a bit of drag on that side of the aircraft, but. Uh, uh, if you go too far out there, obviously, nice that second into the airline issue and, and CG, you know, even though you don't have a CG forward after you have a CG right left and it's throwing that, you know, out of balance for, for lift um, on, on the wing. On one I don't side know. I'm still trying to paint a picture of exactly what was going on here. And I have my doubts about what type of plane they were even using and what they were trying to accomplish. But like I said before, I think it just was probably. Not as well planned as they're trying to make us believe and a little bit flying by the seat of their pants in terms of what they were trying to do. When I first initially started reading this article, and yes, I did read the articles, Captain Jeff. Uh, when I started reading this, I was thinking he was on a like a seven five seven seven six seven, <laughs> you know, wing high off the you know off the concrete, and he fell off that and. No, he's on an aircraft flying through the sky with no nothing more than a parachute. Pretty smart. At least he had a parachute, so he was planning ahead, but he, was. he waited too long to <laughs> use the parachute, apparently, according to the article. Which means that the pilot was also pretty lucky to get away with it, because you think of the height some base jumpers jump from, they're pretty damn low, and they can successfully uh, open their parachutes. Yeah. Well, that is, so there's different types of equipment for base jumping versus regular um, okay, so we're talking uh, norm, a normal static line jump would be from a balloon would be a minimum of what a thousand feet from an aircraft eight hundred feet odd. Yeah, I mean, three thousand. Well, and no one. I mean, if you're talking military stuff, it could be pretty low. Um, but if you're ju- if you're just jumping with a regular um, skydiving parachute, uh, fifteen hundred feet would be exceptionally low to get your parachute open in time. 
Yeah. Right. So they're yeah, probably you, below. You want, start, you want to start pulling between 2,500 and 3,000 feet, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. to start getting yourself mm-hmm. set up because then you have controllability. You have time to think about opening up your second if the, the primary doesn't open. Yeah, but. This is a different situation. This this is a guy falling off the ring and pulling his chute. He could have been using he, a base rig, which, you know, you can, those open much, much more quickly. Um, but again, I don't know exactly what the yeah. situation they got themselves I, into I'm, was. I'm just, the point, the only point I'm trying to make is the, the pilot was lucky to have got away with it as well. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Brilliant people. Yes. Think about it. All right. Well, with that, I think it's now time to get on with your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Let's start off with the first item in our feedback folder. Steve says, hi, APG crew. I hesitate to ask this question because the last feedback I gave was about British Airways monitor, monitored approaches, and that opened up a hornet's nest. Yeah, it did. Uh, but what the heck? Here goes. I live in Mexico City, and my place is right under the standard approach to runway five in Mexico City's International Airport. So I get to spend time sitting out on my terrace with a few beers and watch the aircraft go over. I recently listened to the Uh, approach and tower frequencies using live ATC to follow a Lufthansa arrival from Frankfurt and quickly realized that apart from the Lufthansa flight, all the other arrivals were Mexican slash Latin American carriers and all of the ATC transmissions were in Spanish. Only when they were communicating with the Lufthansa flight did they use English. So this got me to thinking, uh, is this And this is probably a question mainly for Captain Nick. Is this a common ATC language protocol when flying into destinations like this? And if so, does this add to the challenges in terms of the crew's ability to maintain sufficient awareness of what's going on with the other aircraft in the airspace and movements on the ground? To give you an example of what I mean... I think I recall on a previous APG episode, there was a discussion about a situation which happened at Hong Kong airport where an aircraft had been given clearance to cross a runway and they had still not cleared the runway when they heard ATC clear another aircraft to take off in the same runway. Having heard the takeoff clearance, they quickly alerted ATC that they were not clear. And if I recall correctly, ATC canceled the takeoff clearance and a potential collision was averted. Taking this example and applying it, In the scenario of Mexico City, and let's assume the crew crossing the runway are English-speaking, while the departing aircraft is a local Mexican carrier, so the takeoff clearance is given in Spanish. The English-speaking crew are therefore unaware of the takeoff clearance and unable to alert ATC that they are not clear of the runway. That's just one example of where I see the potential risks with these language protocols. Very interested to hear about your experience and how you see the risks and challenges of operating into such destinations. Many thanks, as always, for putting on a great show. Clear skies, tailwinds, and all that jazz. Steve Hurst in Mexico City. Nick, what do you think? Well, it's it's a good question, Steve. But it's one we have addressed uh, at times in the past. Uh, and um, I think uh, we all agree that um, it's never good to... Uh, have air traffic and other aircraft in the same piece of airspace speaking in different languages that we don't all understand. Now, of course, we sitting here are all fat, dumb, happy uh, English speakers. Um, so 
since uh, English is the standard ICAO language, we're not really um, the ones who have to learn the intricacies of a technical language uh, that's not our first language. So we are all quite happy going, yes, everyone should speak and use English all the time. So, And obviously the advantages of that are enormous because uh, we uh, maintain our situation awareness uh, through listening to other aircraft on the radio. We can mentally plot their position. We can hear when mistakes are being made if we're alert enough. And there was a case quite recently on the show where a uh, an aircraft uh, in America was uh, um, launching down the runway, having been given a takeoff clearance, and the controller then cleared two aircraft across the same runway. And the guy rejected his takeoff and uh, said, uh, oh, excuse me, I was in the middle of my takeoff there. Um, uh, so th- that's where a-, a level of awareness and understanding what's happening and listening to the radio helps you. Um in the future, that won't, may not be quite so important, certainly in the strategic changes, because with the use of uh, CPDLC, our data link uh, clearance system, where we get messages sent to aircraft uh, that only appear in their cockpit as a printed message, um, that does remove uh, that level of um, understanding by aircraft around you. So when an aircraft's cleared to climb to a new level, if you're at that level um, and you knew that aircraft was close to you, you might question that, saying, well, I'm already at that level, what's going on? But of course, if you've also got uh, ADS and uh, a situation awareness given by um, the uh, ATC S mode and ADSB, then you will actually see pictures of the aircraft and you will have that to improve your SA and you'll see aircraft climbing up to your level. So to a certain extent, as uh, as technology improves, our situation awareness also improves and it's not necessarily disadvantage. Yes, Captain Jeff, I saw you put your hand up. Thank you. So, but the problem with that is that, yes, you see on ADSB and um, uh, TCAS the aircraft, but you don't, if you're not listening on a frequency, you, you don't know what they've been cleared to do. You only see what they're actually doing at the point. So you may see something climbing, you know, coming in the opposite direction, climbing up toward your altitude, but you don't know that they've only been cleared to an altitude a thousand or two thousand feet below you. Oh, sure. But I think right? it's just an additional tool in your oh, situation. Oh, it's an additional tool, awareness. but I'm saying it doesn't, but it doesn't substitute for situational. To me, it's almost like speaking in different languages. It's almost the same thing to me. It's like, I don't, I see these things going on, but I don't know what they've been cleared to do. Uh, and and, no, I, you, and I think you, that you make, you, you make a good point, Jeff, and I and I do quite agree. But uh, the flaw in radio communications is you can have controllers working different frequencies close to a border where you've got aircraft crossing the border and on on the same frequency, True. so you wouldn't necessarily get that information either. Um, this this with different language is a much bigger problem because now we're in the circuit in the uh, the arrivals and departures area where almost all communication is going to be uh, verbally on the radio. See. BDSC doesn't have a place there. Right. Um, so you won't get it there. Uh, and there it's really important to understand what's going on around you. And when um, 
the countries uh, feel that they're safe in using their local language, which means you as an English-speaking IKO standard pilot pitch up and can't understand what the devil's going on around you, I think that presents a significant flight safety risk. Uh, I would personally like to see all um, transmissions done in English alone, but sadly, not all the uh, countries around the world are going to adhere to that. Jeff. And the other thing I was going to say, many airports around here in the United States, big airports, they'll split their frequencies. And sometimes you'll be given a clearance on a frequency, let's say ground control or maybe the other tower to cross an active runway. But you're not monitoring and everything is in English. And but you still don't hear the transmissions that are occurring on the active runway that you're crossing. And I think that's dangerous, too. I, I don't like that at all. I like to hear you know, what's happening on the runway that I'm crossing. I don't like to rely upon ground control uh, to give me a clearance to cross a runway that tower has control of. You know, uh, it just makes me uncomfortable. No, no, I I agree. I mean, I I think overall we're moving to a safer world as we get more and more data presented to the pilots in a clearer uh, pictorial manner. And uh, I think whilst... uh, uh, we're getting these more advanced uh, runway incursion indications uh, come from uh, reels and the other uh, red lights that appear mm. when uh, you get a runway yep. incursion. Uh, all that technology is moving forward and it is making us uh, into a safer world. But until that is perfect, and I don't think it will ever be completely perfect, I would prefer to see everyone using a common language on the same frequency when you're in the same piece of airspace. I do have a question for but, you, though. Um do you ever have difficulty where say you're in a non-English speaking country and folks are talking on the radio in English, but because of accents or other reasons, exactly. it's very exactly. difficult to understand anyway? Well, funnily enough, exactly what I was going to say. It takes a little bit of acclimatization, sure. but um, I, I usually find that most foreign non-English speakers, uh, when they're doing standard uh, English phraseology, are actually very particular about how they speak, and they always use the standard phrases. So, as opposed to sometimes when I go to the states, and I find the RT unbelievably lax. Yeah. And I'm sorry to have to say going. that. But no, I was also no, I agree. there with, is, with that. It is casual and, and glib at times, even when you're getting uh, important instructions that have a mandatory readback and they're not being given or even acknowledged with a call sign. I, I, right. That gets under my skin. Mm-hmm. So, but I, and I find the foreign carriers are usually much more meticulous where they fall down is if they have a problem that's outside the simple everyday language and sure. they're trying to explain a more complicated situation or problem they've got, that's where it all starts to break down. Yep. And you know what? Those of us who fly in this system in the U.S., Nick, um, who also get frustrated with that same thing that you get frustrated with, uh, not using standard phraseology. Wait, hold on. See ya! Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Clear to go. Clear to go. You know, instead of clear for takeoff, is you know rolling cleared clear to go. On or the whatever, roll. You know, what? Yeah, on the roll. So you know, um, our company, um, Dana, it's been quite some time now. It's probably 15, 20 years ago. There were some bulletins put out saying we need to make sure that we're using standard radio um, phraseology because we're we're kind of 
spanked a little bit for being a little bit lackadaisical on proper phraseology. And so everything straightened up for a few years. And then, of course, now we're back to, you know, it's a generational thing. And as you get new pilots joining who have come up from a less formal background, uh, they will need to be reeducated. So it's an education that never really should stop. And we get I mean, we get relatively regular notices reminding us uh, and I'm lucky in the fact that when I use in, in the UK the air traffic controllers generally speaking here in the UK are pretty meticulous uh, so you know a, a formal approach from an air trafficker breeds a formal reply uh, from the pilot and it's very hard to be glib when the guy on the other end of the frequency is being deadpan so yeah Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's also fair to say that the English uh, English happen to be a little more starched than the Americans, if you know what I mean. They they tend to be a little more formal in their speech and more more uh, controlled in the words they use, and not so uh, cowboyish. Uh, you know. Well, I don't know. I've met a lot of uh, Brits that. Uh, oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you make a fair comment there, don't you? Yeah, yeah I, I think. I mean, I just think it's just a different way of of communicating like you know the way the australians speak english versus brits versus canadians versus americans and then you get the regional dialects you know of course most people don't understand what in the world i'm saying what i'm saying we could we could smart you know so yeah uh, which i'm not by the way but that having, was wicked smart perhaps the most anal air traffic controllers are in the yeah. world come from down under so and i'm not talking about new zealand hmm. down i should Perhaps I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Nick at Airline Pilot Guide. <laughs> Sorry, guys. No, 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 you're all fine. You're all great. Love you. Love you, but I don't well, fly to Sydney anymore. I think professionalism breeds professionalism and vice versa. So yep. if you're met with professionalism, perhaps you're more inclined to uh, be professional as well. Yeah. You know, when you speak about professionalism, you know, I found it very interesting in, in my, and in, in not to kind of come off of that topic that we're talking about, but now that we're talking about professionalism, I found it quite um, eye-opening when I was in the sim this past week, and that is that now that I'm in the left seat, I had a very senior first officer in the right seat that had kind of the same nonchalant way of doing things that I used to have. And now as a captain, I, I find that I'm a little more uh, regimented by what, what the company says to do and how to do it properly and how to make radio freeze, you know, radio calls properly. And so even in the sim, he wasn't even pulling the trigger to make the radio calls. And that even something as simple as that was to me as a, as a captain was kind of unprofessional. Do you see what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. you know, here we are, you know, we're trying to stay current and do things by the book. And, and, and as, as a, uh, <clears throat> as somebody that's trying to do that more and more as, as a responsible captain that I am, um, that's one of the things that I've noticed is, is, is that I absolutely agree with everyone here. It's, it's a matter of being a professional. It's a matter about speaking properly. It's in, in making the proper radio calls and, and using the proper uh, nomenclature. So, you know, I think, you know, in the world that we live in uh, as professional pilots, it's easy to kind of start getting a little bit lack of lackadaisical or relaxed or casual and not really understanding that how how that may be impacting safety. Remember, I use that word complacency. 
All right. Us, us, us pilots like you and I, Jeff, that fly into the same airport and have been doing so for eons and talk to the same controllers and they are used to dealing with the MDs and the, and the seven threes and the baby buses that are in and out constantly all the time. It's pretty much a non, it's always a threatening environment, but the way that they have everything set up, especially in the ATL, it runs like clockwork. So it's very easy to become complacent. Now we know that we have one person in the tower in Atlanta that is right by the book. We know who that guy is, right? Mr. Happy. Mr. Happy. Okay. So when when we don't do it, when we don't say it right, and boy, I'll tell you what, there's been many times I want to throw something through the window at him <laughs> because that's exactly what I said, but wasn't the proper nomenclature. And he comes back and says, well, that's not what we said, Acme. And, you you know, you repeat it. Yeah. So, you know, it, it it is there is a level of, of of complacency I think that's involved, especially with high volume operations, especially airports that we're very familiar with. <laughs> where, where Nick would be a lot more frustrated because it's not as 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 common. It's so funny, and this is universal. Everybody that I've ever flown with, as soon as we hear that voice, we're going, oh <laughs> no, be careful about what you say here because you know that they're gonna he's gonna make you say it until you get it right. So just say everything well, right to begin I, with. I'm just going to say, I don't know that I agree with that approach either, because then you're just eating up time on the radio. <laughs> that guy's just miserable. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, at some point that becomes unprofessional as well. I agree. The, yeah. Yeah. So yep. everyone just do your jobs as you're supposed to do it. You know, you're going to encounter the occasional oddball comment here and there. Right. Think about it. Move on. It hasn't impacted anything safety wise, then, you know. Maybe do the best you can to do it right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good discussion. Yeah. Thank you, Steve, for uh, opening that can of worms. That, yeah, that can of worms. So, so he opened the can of words on the uh, monitored the, approaches. Uh, the monitored approaches. So, so uh, Liz, next time you see something from Steve Hurst, just go ahead and throw it away. Yes. <laughs> just we kidding, love you, Steve. We do. <laughs> Just Ex- excellent conversation. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking of uh, some great feedback, Chris uh, wrote in with this. Let me see which Chris is this. Chris Postal from near Cambridge, UK. Um, hi, all. I watched an absolutely fascinating lecture online recently given by Frank Abagnale. Is that the way you pronounce yep. that? Abagnale. Abagnale. So it, yeah. it was funny in the uh, in the movie. Uh, they mispronounce it Abagnale, but it's Abagnale. Okay, yeah. Abagnale, whose story was made famous in the film Catch Me If You Can, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. During the lecture, he explains how he was able to fraudulently pose as a Pan Am pilot for many years and deadhead around the world for free. He's a captivating speaker. I'm not sure if you're able to play an excerpt of the audio in the show. I'm going to. Uh, but he starts telling his airline story uh, just shy of six minutes, and it's honestly incredible to hear him tell the tale himself 40 years later as a serial fraudster turned fbi cybersecurity expert well worth a listen if you haven't heard it already and so he gave me the link which we'll have in the show notes and i really do recommend that you you listen to the entire thing it's over an hour including his um talk is about just shy of 30 minutes and there's another half an hour or so of uh, questions and answers and he is an amazing speaker and i would say that watching this video it was a talk um a google google talk i think 
watching this video was almost better than watching the movie. It oh, was, sure. I mean, it was that was yeah. an amazing some, speaker. Yeah. Yeah. I picked up some <laughs> great hints on uh, on how to prevent uh, fraud of my debit stroke credit cards as well. So, and he even talks about topics like, uh, you know, being what a, being a father means. Yeah. You know, being a man, yeah. what that means. Uh, and it's very just a, it's engaging powerful. man, uh, lovely yeah. speaker. So let me uh, play just a little excerpt of uh, of the talk that he gave. And it's just a little sm small snippet, and it regards something to do with flying, which is what we're interested in here. Pan Am says they estimate that between the ages of 16 and 18, I flew more than a million miles for free, boarded more than 260 commercial aircraft in more than 26 countries around the world. Pan Am says, keep in mind the fact that Frank Abagnale did in fact pose as one of our pilots for a long period of time. He never once stepped on board one of our aircraft. That's true. I never flew on Pan Am because I was afraid someone might say to me, you know, I'm based in San Francisco, been out there 16 years. I don't recall ever meeting you before. Or someone might say, you know, your ID card is not exactly like my ID card. So instead, I flew on everyone else. If I wanted to go somewhere, I literally just walked out to the airport, walked up on the board, United Flight 800 to Chicago, then I went downstairs to the door marked United Operations and walked in. The operations clerk, hey, Pan Am, what can we do for you? So one of the jump seats open on 800 needed it at Chicago. It's open this evening, I'd like to get a pink slip pass. I'd give him my ID, write me out a pass, I'd walk out, hand it to the flight attendant, she'd open the door to the cockpit, and I'd step in. They had a captain, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, and a seat behind the captain called the jump seat, where pilots deadhead on company time. Now, because pilots love to talk shop, once you picked up that jargon, it was the same conversation over and over and over. <laughs> so I'd just step on board, even down Bob Davis be riding to Chicago. On the taxi out, always the same question. So Bob, how long have you been with Pan Am? Been flying about seven years. What position you fly? Right seat, which is airline terminology for a co-pilot. What type of equipment are we on? Had that one down. Perfect. <laughs> Matter of fact, whatever they flew, I didn't fly, so I had no problems with that. Then we'd arrive in Chicago, I'd go by the Pan Am ticket counter, but just enough to get the attention of the passenger service rep. Excuse me, I haven't laid over here in over a year. We're still at the Parma House Hilton downtown, catch a crew bus, low level door three out. I go down the Parma House Hilton, walk in, and on the corner of the registration desk was a little sign that said Airline Cruise. That was a three-ring binder you signed in, referenced your flight number, showed your ID, they'd give me a key, I'd stay two or three days, and Pan Am would be direct billed for my room and my meals. I also could cash a personal check at the front desk because I was an employee of the airline, the airline had a contract with the hotel. And as a All right, so there you go. There's a little excerpt um, of his talk, and, and trust me, as we all... Um, have been saying he is a very captivating speaker he just amazed me he wasn't reading from notes he never once looked down at any notes that i could tell when he was doing this talk it and, but it was just like a constant stream uh, well, he's obviously a, he's just a brilliant guy i mean you have to, yeah. need to be able to pull that off successfully for as long as he did he's also a very smooth tongued devil mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. and, and confident you have to have yes. a lot of confidence to be. Yeah, able and he to talks blow. about that in this talk yep. that, you know, yeah. that's how he basically got away with it. But I mean, even at his age, I don't know exactly how old he is, but you notice there are no ums and ahs. He didn't lose the thread. No. He just, and he talked like a, like a nicely modulated machine gun. You, you yep. can tell that there's a really sharp brain in there clacking away. Very yep. good. So really highly recommended folks uh, to listen to, to this entire talk that he did. Um,
Yeah. And I have not finished myself with uh, listening to all the uh, questions and answers, but I can t- I'm, I intend to so, follow uh, up on that. Just as a hint, a I've chance. now locked my debit card away and I'll never, ever use that again. <laughs> yeah. I've only ever used my credit card. Yes. I've been yes. doing that for quite That's some time now. a timely reminder. Yeah. I, I haven't yeah. listened to it. What, you know, I've, I've gotten through like 22 minutes because I you know got here late. The, this mm-hmm. afternoon, less than 22 minutes. I haven't gotten that far, but I can assure you, I never use my debit card except for if I'm going to an ATM machine only to get cash out of my credit union. That's it. Yeah. So so I, think, I think you're, Jen, Jennifer in the, uh, in the chat room has an interesting question, or at least one that I'm interested in as well. Do you think he could get away with it now? No. Hmm. Well, he well he does he does say uh, in in the Q and A portion mm-hmm. that he thinks it's actually easier now yeah, uh, to to, to get away with fraud. You, said you can create a false website. You can create a false ID because everything is available. Whereas he had to scratch around trying to get uh, logos and work out what typeface, etc. He said all that's available. You can often get samples of ID cards. Uh, with sample written on it, but you can use that to basically create a template. And he said it, it was incredibly easy. I think it still yeah. just takes the same amount of smooth talking and confidence once you have all of that in place. So the the rules yeah. change a little bit, but the the basics of the game are still the same. I and think. that was a lovely, lovely point he made. He said, it doesn't matter how good your security system is, every employee has to use it perfectly or do it perfectly. Yeah. And you only have to find that one employee who's making a mistake or is going to let something slide to uh, please you. And uh, there you go. You've done your, you've got in, done your thing. He said the hackers really aren't doing anything but waiting for somebody to make a mistake. Yep. That no, was good. I, I found it fascinating. Yeah, I did too. So thank you, Chris, for pointing that out to us. And uh, now the entire APG community is going to listen to it as well and and be and amazed we'll by our debit this talk. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. We've been going for a little over two hours. So this is usually the time that we uh, play the best part of the show, which, as we all know, is the plain tales installment for this episode which is here we go hold him cowboy by the old dot pilot the old pilot's plain tales here we go hold him cowboy In 1864, the forces of the Confederates and those of the Union were about to meet at the Battle of New Hope Church. The Union Army, under the command of Major General Sherman, was about to face the Confederate Army of the Tennessee, commanded by General Johnson. Sherman was determined to move around Johnson's left flank, but Johnson saw the move coming and shifted his forces to stand in their path. Battle raged, and amongst the gun smoke, the screams of the wounded and dying drifted over new hope. Over a hundred years later, the battle long consigned to the history books, thoughts of fire and death would be gone until the disastrous arrival of Flight 242. Matthew Gilreath is one of our listeners, and he told me about the aircraft that came down only a few miles from his house, scarring both the landscape and the lives of many who live in his small community. 
Let me take you to 1977, April the 4th to be precise, and let's follow Captain Bill McKenzie, a highly experienced pilot with Southern Airways, and his first officer, ex-Navy pilot, Lyman Keel. It had been an early spring day which dawned over Atlanta with mild conditions. It warmed from 60 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 15 to 21 degrees centigrade, by lunchtime, and looked ideal for a day to enjoy the outdoors. However, by early afternoon, a strong cold front was slicing through the southeast across Tennessee and Alabama. The rapid upward motion created by the front and the cold air aloft combined with ample surface warmth and moisture to create an environment ripe for thunderstorms. The area forecast issued by the National Weather Service indicated marginal visual flight rule conditions, visibility 3 to 5 miles in haze and overcast cloud at between 1,000 and 2,000 feet, leading to occasional instrument conditions. The cloud was going to be layered cloud up to 19,000 feet, with scattered thunderstorms reaching up to 35,000 feet. A few severe storms were predicted near the front, with tops to 55,000 feet. The crew came to work around lunchtime to fly their Southern Airways DC-9 from Atlanta to Muscle Shoals and then on to Huntsville. At Muscle Shoals, they received several SIGMETs, aviation jargon for significant meteorological information, for their area of flight, including SIGMET Charlie 7, which warned of scattered to numerous thunderstorms developing, occasionally in lines, a few severe with possible tornadoes. They continued on to Huntsville, their last stop, before returning to Atlanta, but the worst weather they had seen so far was some light rain and some light turbulence. Nothing really worth mentioning. At Huntsville, they stayed in the cockpit for the short turnaround, and their dispatcher got them the weather for Atlanta. There was currently broken cloud at around 2,700 feet, more at 5,000 and complete overcast at 25,000. The visibility was 5 miles, with the wind out of the southwest at 31 gusting to 47 miles an hour. It was basically cloudy, warm and windy conditions. Nothing too much to worry about. What the Met report didn't mention was that a school line had developed, which was showing up on the National Weather Service radar at Athens. Four-tenths of the area was covered, and the echoes were moving east-northeast at 55 knots. The maximum rain returns were near Rome, an area the crew had flown through only two hours earlier without any significant problems, so perhaps they weren't entirely prepared for the dramatic change in conditions. Just before 4pm, Flight 242 departed Huntsville for its final leg back to Atlanta, a mere 30 minutes of flight. It was Lyman's turn to fly the aircraft, so his captain was working the radio. They climbed to 17,000 feet and set course for the short journey. The flight was cleared direct to Rome, and as the radar began to show the heavy weather ahead of them, Bill McKenzie remarked to his first officer, the radar's full of it. Take your pick. 
Mackenzie's controller told him that his scope was showing heavy precipitation and that the echoes were about five miles ahead of him. We're in the rain right now, came the reply. It doesn't look much heavier than what we're in, does it? The Huntsville departure controller told the crew that he had the weather cutting devices on, a feature that removed some weather from the radar display to make it easier for him to see the aircraft returns. He described what he could see as not a solid mass, but it appeared to be heavier than what they were in right now. The pilots discussed what they could see on their radar, but it was obviously a confusing picture. First Officer Keel remarked, I can't read that. It just looks like rain, Bill. What do you think? There's a hole? There's a hole, his captain remarked. There's a hole right here. That's all I see. Reminding his first officer that their radar had worked well on the previous flights, he added, I believe right straight ahead there. The next few miles is about the best way we can go. Within a couple of minutes, the Huntsville controller handed Flight 242 over to Atlanta Center, and Captain McKenzie's reply perhaps conveyed a little of his concern. Here we go. Hold em, cowboy. Shortly after making contact with Atlanta, the noise of rain was heard on the cockpit voice recorder. Aircraft in the same general area as Flight 242 were reporting their flight conditions. A TWA flight had avoided Rome to the east, and Eastern Airlines to the northwest of Rome advised that their conditions were not too comfortable, but that they didn't get into anything hazardous. Flight 242 remained on course. Another change in frequency, and Flight 242 reported level at 17. Captain McKenzie commented to his first officer, Looks heavy. Nothing going through that. A few seconds later, he said, See that? That's a hole, isn't it? His first officer replied. It's worth taking a moment at this point to describe how the radar on this aircraft displayed weather returns and the limitations of the equipment. As the NTSB accident report mentions, the aircraft continued on about the same heading for slightly more than one minute following those comments. The flight crew discussed a possible hole. Given the high intensity of precipitation levels of the storm, the aircraft's radar clearly should have shown a contour hole. To explain, whereas modern coloured radar displays can show the subtlety of weather intensity, the old monochromatic displays of the time just showed various shades of green, the darker, the heavier. With contour mode selected, the very heaviest and most dangerous conditions showed as a black hole, which would indicate a severe storm. It's worth mentioning that a black area was also the normal indication of clear weather. The radar on the DC-9 would also be suffering from attenuation. Put simply, attenuation weakens the radar's beam downstream of the weather because of absorption and scattering along the path of the radar's beam. 
The attenuation is severe where the weather is dense and its composition size is large, such as in a severe storm full of heavy rain and hail. The crew drove on into an area that they hoped was clear of weather. Which way do we go? Cross here or go out? shouted Lyman Keel. I don't know how we get through there, Bill. I know, came the reply. You're just going to have to go out. The NTSB report suggests that perhaps the contour hole that they were flying into was distorted and didn't resemble a classic indication. It's possible that the crew were fatigued, having only just met the requirements for rest before the flight and probably having had an inadequate food intake. But for whatever the reason, the captain says, All clear left, and they begin a left turn. As they do so, the noise becomes intense. A passenger near the rear of the aircraft by an engine watched the hail smashing into the engine's cowling, leaving dents. Turbulence, hail and rain pounded the aircraft. With a loud report, one of the front windshields cracks, and then Lyman shouted, The left engine won't spool! And a few seconds later, the other engine's going too. When the engines fail, electrical power is interrupted and they lose some equipment, but they get a message through to Atlanta Center. Our left engine just cut out. The other engine's going too. Say again, reply Atlanta. Uh, Stand by. We just lost both engines, Bill McKenzie replies. They had almost been clear of the vicious storm, but now they're gliding, and unknown to them, their engines are badly damaged and useless. The investigation discovered that torrents of ice and rain that poured into the intakes of both JT-8D engines caused them to surge and stall, and although rotational speed was lost, the engines managed to remain alight. The natural reaction of the pilot when losing speed would be to advance the thrust levers, which would aggravate the situation. The backflow of air caused the low-pressure compressor blades to flex and clash against the guide vanes, causing some to break. Subsequent ingestion of those broken parts caused further damage to the compressors and the turbine sections until the engines were no longer capable of producing thrust. Clear of the storm but still in cloud, the 85 passengers and crew on Flight 242 were in a dire situation. They're down to 7,000 feet and the pilots are trying to work the myriad of faults they had when first Officer Keel realises that they need an airfield to land at. I'm familiar with Dobbins, he says to his captain. Tell them to give me a vector to Dobbins if they're clear. The controller's answer is to switch them to another frequency. They had to fight to get through the other radio traffic and then pass the message that they had lost both engines and needed vectors to Dobbins. It's 20 miles to the east of them, they're told. They're struggling to find their Dobbins approach plates, restart their ruined engines, fire up their auxiliary power unit, get some flap out, and all the while their precious altitude is bleeding away. In the cabin, the senior flight attendant tries to find out what's going on. She calls her colleagues on the aircraft phone system. 
Sandy? Yeah. They wouldn't talk to me when I looked in. The whole front windshield is cracked. Okay, so what do we do? Uh, he screamed at me when I opened the door. Just sit down. So I didn't ask him a thing. I don't know the results or anything. The pilots, meanwhile, had inadvertently turned through 180 degrees and realised that they probably won't make it to Dobbins with the height remaining. They asked for a closer airfield. They're 10 miles south of Cartersville and 15 miles west of Dobbins. They turn for Cartersville but have no idea of runway direction or length and they're running out of options. I'm picking out a clear field, says the captain. No, says his first officer. Bill, you've got to find me a highway. Captain Mackenzie spots a highway with no cars. Is it straight? Gill asks. The reply is a terse no. We'll have to take it down, Keel says. Captain Mackenzie makes his final transmission. We're putting it down on the highway. We're down to nothing. In the cabin, the crew have done an excellent job. With no information forthcoming from the pilots, they took it upon themselves to brief all the passengers on an emergency landing, and as they see the trees coming up around them, they are shouting, Bend down and grab your ankles! The aircraft lands on a spur of Route 92, the Dallas-Ackworth Highway, right on the yellow line, but the left wing clips roadside poles, and the aircraft begins to veer to the left. It ploughs through the car park of a general store and gas station and breaks up as it hits trees and other obstacles. Fuel from the shattered wings and the gas station ignites and a fierce fire develops. Only a few hundred folk live in New Hope, but one of them was Sadie Burkhalter. She had just called in her children when she heard a roar that she thought was a twister. Running for the basement with her kids, she was knocked down the last few steps as the roar turned into an explosion. Climbing out and peering through her front door, she saw fire in her yard. It had been turned into a vision of hell. Barefoot and bewildered, survivors were stumbling through the flaming wreckage towards her. Some ran around engulfed in flames, others clad in ragged remnants of clothes, resembled sleepwalkers. The silence was eerie. They weren't screaming, barely able to speak. They just pleaded for help. Their stories are a horrific combination of luck and a survival instinct that led them through the wreckage to safety. Not far away, a 71-year-old lady came out of her front door when she heard the noise, only to be struck and killed by an aircraft wheel that had come free from the DC-9. Carving a line of destruction nearly 2,000 feet long through New Hope, Flight 242 struck and killed nine people on the ground, innocently going about their day, including three mothers and their four children in the same car parked in front of the grocery store. Both pilots died, along with 61 of their passengers, and many others were severely injured. 
of the cabin crew, the NTSB commented that, despite a complete lack of communication from the flight deck, they, on their own initiative, briefed and prepared the passengers for an emergency landing, including giving the final brace for impact command. The board noted that this contributed to the number of survivors. The board determined that the probable cause of the accident was the loss of thrust from the engines after penetrating an area of severe thunderstorms. They commented on the crew's reliance on their aircraft's radar to attempt to resolve a path through the bad weather, and how their dispatcher might have passed up-to-date National Weather Service data to them prior to their departure from Huntsville, but didn't. They also questioned the crew's decision to turn away from Dobbins, which they could have reached, and also the complete lack of training that the pilots had received concerning a total loss of thrust. This was, after all, the very first time that such an event had ever happened to a jet-powered airliner. It was a tragic event, and one in which we learned, because of this incident, so learned so much about uh, radar technology, attenuation, um, etc. Um, it just shakes me to hear that hear that story again. Uh, so and it so happened. close to home for you, Jeff. Yeah, only very close an identical much, airplane, but right on your doorstep. Yeah, um, even closer to Dana's doorstep, actually. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say it's real close to my doorstep. Yeah, a piece of airspace you must fly through regularly. Yeah, we used to fly over, uh, well, we still do, uh, yeah. coming in from the northwest over Rome, Georgia, or in that area. Um, Paulding County, New Hope, Georgia is where they mm-hmm. put it down. Absolutely. I uh, ride there on a regular basis, that area. Really? Uh, there's, a, there's a plaque. Uh, I've seen a picture of it uh, marking that site. Um, and uh, I don't know if... Uh, if Jill will, I hope he will, uh, Matt Gill Reith, I'm sorry, will uh, listen to this. But uh, Matt, if um, if I could have a couple of pictures to uh, append to that tale of anything that, of interest concerning that crash where you live, I'd be um, I'd be very grateful. Um, but uh, yeah, th- there were so many learning, I think, so many learning points from that. Um, I think. The it was interesting that the captain didn't fly the aircraft, even though he was more experienced than his first officer at handling the machine. It was interesting that they never found time to brief the cabin crew. Um, their interpretation of the radar and their uh, lack of understanding of its limitations, um, and of course the general organisation of air traffic when you get such severe weather um, phenomena. Uh, which now is fantastic, and now air traffic will vehemently deny you permission to go through certain pieces of airspace, um, and all really as a result of this accident. Uh, you know, the, the control and monitoring and restrictions that are, exist around this severe weather uh, are very well sorted. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the sometimes you get an accident and you feel frustrated because, 
you know, a few years later, there's another very similar one and then something similar. But I think this one generated a big change in the way um, weather was monitored and disseminated to the pilots uh, in the States. Would you agree, Jeff? I would. And our technology is so much better now um, since the accident in 1977. And now people kind of understand when i say that i don't i don't like flying in or near thunderstorms this is the reason <laughs> mm-hmm. this is uh yeah. their their mother nature's most um severe threats i think and and we mustn't forget that a lot of aircraft that are still flying and yours i sort of put in that bracket jeff are of the same era and technology now some changes may be made but the uh, it's not like it's got the most modern three-dimensional um, topographically uh, attuned database organized uh, radar multi-beam different displays from the pilot uh, the you know both pilots if they want them uh, interleaved uh, scans that we get on modern radars it's it's kind of a bit more basic i think uh, on your machines but we do yeah we do have um, much better radar than that was on the old original DC-9. Oh, for sure. We have yeah. a yeah. color yeah. wind radar. And it's not the monochrome technology no, anymore. No, it's, it's a any stretch. No. multicolored sure. weather radar. It's not three-dimensional. You know, it's not the what, you, what Captain Nick just described. You don't get those dark spaces and, where instead of being a gap in the precipitation, it's really something very severe. Well, so we know now yeah. Yeah. that uh, when we see that, that that's, that's that like, is. oh, okay, I know what's happening here. Yeah. I understand that... Just because it looks like it's clear behind that severe lot of weather doesn't mean it's clear. In fact, it could be worse than what we're seeing, sure. you know, right here in front of us. Yeah, yeah and, and some of the things, thunderstorms, in addition to, you know, not only fl- not flying through directly through them is some of the, the hidden hazards that we really can't see very well, and that's hail and turbulence. Right. I mean, look at look at what we were just talking about earlier in the show, and both the severe turbulence, and you know, mm-hmm. more than likely, the captain had the seatbelt sign on, and more than likely, people just didn't listen because yeah. you know there's a reason we turn the seatbelt sign on. Well, and, and, uh, we see turbulence uh, certainly in associated with weather because uh, we our radars uh, on our aircraft measure the velocity of and the movement of raindrops so they can they can measure turbulence it pitches up as purple indications on our displays um so it, it is available uh, but obviously not every aircraft's got that technology and it still does no. happen from time to time where aircraft find themselves in you know encountering hail with significant damage there have been incidents oh, this yeah. year, earlier in the year with significant oh, yeah. damage to aircraft so it still happens yeah, yeah. at least a couple of times a year mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, even with all our modern technology, usually due to bad decision making. Yes. Modern technology cannot fix bad decision making, unfortunately. That's right. So true. So true. So thank you, Captain Nick, for that. Um, Although it was kind of a downer to hear that whole thing again. But, you know, it's a it's a good story to remember for sure. For me, it was a new story. Uh, so oh, wow. okay. yeah. I've got to thank uh, Matt for bringing it to my attention. But uh, of course, for you guys, a lot closer to your home, you much more familiar. So, yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on with uh, some feedback from Paul. 
He said, in episode 344, you talked about the Falcon 50 crash and the qualifications of the captain. I came across this article recently in an HR journal about a pilot who submitted a false reference regarding his qualifications and what happened to him. Whilst reference provider's name was subtle and was easily missed, unless you're a fan of a certain movie franchise, it highlights a lack of due diligence on ATP qualification verification in some organizations does go on even in 2018, unlike back in the day at Acme. I've redacted the individual and company involved should you wish to use this in a future show. Uh, this is, again, from Paul Munro and um, talks about an employee who used as his reference. Uh, I'm trying to find the uh, the name here. Um, how do you pronounce that? Does, huh? Use that. The uh, it was yeah. A, it was from a Star Wars. Name of a Star Wars character. Does it actually say it? It's all black. Yes, uh, oh, below the second paragraph. Oh. Does does logic? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> I'm not a hardcore Star Wars fan. No, so I'm sorry. Not either. I'm sorry. But it's a. It's an alternative name used by Jabba the Hutt. And uh, anyway, so apparently that's who he used as a reference in his uh, his application and, and his qualifications. And apparently they they didn't follow through and, and uh, talk to the reference provided and turned out that this guy's qualifications were uh, uh, were, were not correct. And uh, so basically they I think they. They fired him, and then he sued them mm-hmm. for firing him. For breach of contract. And and for black. breach of contract. And, and it turns out that then the company countersued, and not they won that counter lawsuit. And uh, the employee ended up having to pay. Not only did he lose his job, but he had to uh, pay the employer 4,725 pounds mm-hmm. uh, for the... I, I can't believe he didn't end up in jail uh yeah i mean trying to falsify um what is a, a federal document by saying or oh, federal position by saying you're a pilot when you're not i mean the faa federal aviation authority issue pilots licenses by trying to claim you've got one when you don't isn't that a federal offense and shouldn't you go to jail yeah i think you should it's interesting because uh <clears throat> at acne when i was a an instructor. We had a uh, instructor that forged all his his uh, certifications. Didn't oh, know about really? it then. Yeah, but he, you know, he's he's DC nine type rated pilot, and he, you know, he's an MEI, CFI, double I. And was he any good? Uh, actually, yeah, he was. He was a very good instructor, and he, he was very much like you know, catch me if you can. I mean, he very smooth talker. I, you know, spent a lot of time. We worked the entire uh, manual weight and balance uh, way of doing, uh, you know, the manual weight and balance if uh, the computer systems went down. So we used to have to teach that. So I worked one-on-one with him. And it was very, uh, very interesting once I found out, you know, once they had the, uh, after September 11th, the verification of everybody in, in fair, you know, Records Act or whatever the name of that was, is when they found out that he was working for um, ACME in a role that was, uh, completely and totally uh, not uh, not legal because he was not rated for anything that he was saying that he was. And it's happened. And he's sitting in it's jail. It's happened several times in, uh, in history. You know, the episode, I believe, was 70 on the Airline Pilot Go show. I interviewed Thomas Salme, who was the uh, 
guy that flew for several airlines in the UK and Europe um, as a an airline pilot, and nobody seemed to even have a hint that this is a person that didn't have the qualifications to do the job. So apparently he flew the airplane pretty well, never uh, arose any suspicion. Uh, another one, uh, when I was uh, in the early days with Acme, an Eastern captain uh, was flying around for years without proper licenses and certifications. Um, yeah. That's so it happens. crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was surely it must be the simplest thing in the world just to, get it onto the FAA database and see if one someone actually has a license or not. I don't understand yeah. it. Well, now I think that they've, they've straightened all that out, and it, it's much more difficult to get away with it. But it's probably still <laughs> still possible, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, Frick writes in from Cape Town. Uh, Hi there, magnificent and brilliant. And then he puts in parentheses, at least 50% of the time. APG crew. Uh, this is something that has been bugging me for a bit. If there, I think if uh, I think there is consensus on the pilot shortage, but how can this shortage be justified with the number of airlines going belly up? It seems like every week there's another airline that's folding, and surely the pilots will then move to airlines that are experiencing pilot shortages. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Keep the nose wheel on the center line and a steady supply of good IPAs. Frick. What do you think? Well, I don't think enough airlines are going bust is the the answer. Yes, airlines are going bust, and all those pilots are being soaked up pretty damn quick. But that's not – the size of the retirement hump is way bigger than than the number that are being released by uh, dying airlines. So, no, it will obviously help. It's helped some airlines, including mine. Uh, those fantastic monarch pilots we've taken on board have proven to, prove, and to be uh, a boon to us, but um, no, not enough to go around. I'm but you afraid. still need more pilots. Yeah. yeah. Still need more pilots. And you know, let's face it, <clears throat> some are, uh, you know, let's say, for example, Acme Red right now went belly up for whatever reason, God forbid, right? So here we get Nick that is in his. You know, let's say it was just even two or three years ago. So, you know, guys like in Nick's shoes, would they go ahead and go sat at the bottom of the, the entire seniority list, being a real junior first officer, making very little money? Probably not. So there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a contingent of guys that are just not going to sat over. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. And uh, once more, they're going to spread them out, spread, spread themselves around the world so you get some go to the middle east some will go to the far east some will stay in the country um so yeah and and there's an awful lot of pilots needed everywhere so no i'm afraid the old airline is not going to help yeah I and mean, a lot of guys go out on contract just like we were talking about fly flying those other places on contract for a couple of years <laughs> oh man i just get so emotional when i'm flying sometimes <laughs> Oh, number six. I I, I don't blame you, considering who you have to work with. Imagine both of you sobbing, flying together. That's terrible. So, Captain Nick, Captain Nick sent us this piece of feedback. Um, According to CNN, uh, they say that uh, we're more likely to cry 
while we're flying, especially if you're flying as a passenger on one of my flights. <laughs> I was going to say, say immediately after landing. Landings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a unique travel experience that human beings didn't do in significant numbers until quite recently. So it's no wonder it does some strange and unexpected things to us, including bringing us to tears. The report, the reporting is anecdotal, but there's plenty of it. Virgin Atlantic even did a survey in 2011 that found over half of respondents agreed their emotions become heightened when on a flight. And 41% of men surveyed said they hid under blankets to hide their tears. Yeah, I'm when always fly. under a blanket. <laughs> it's very hard to fly the airplane, but at least they can't see my tears. So, Steph, why is it that I cry when I'm on the airplane? Because they put all these wonderful movies in the in-flight entertainment system, and they're all a bunch of tear jerkers. Because <laughs> that's what that's I true. end up watching on flights. And then I'm sitting there, and I'm watching like Marley and me. And that's oh, always yeah. the time they come around to take a drink order, like right after yeah. the dog dies. You're like, fine. <laughs> I'm okay. More wine, please. I'll have, a, I'll have another glass of wine. <laughs> I'm always watching the tearjerkers, and I don't know why. Maybe it's something about flying that brings me to do that when I wouldn't normally otherwise. So I guess, you know, flying, you're at a higher cabin altitude. So that probably has something to do with maybe you are, more... maybe you're a little hypoxic or, yeah. or more than you are used to being. And, you know, we've talked about the effects of that before where you can almost mm-hmm. be in that like, you know, um, buzzed type state. So a little bit more emotional than than before or than mm-hmm. usual. Um, I don't know. They talk about some unusual things that I don't think have anything to do with anything. Smaller seats, minimized legroom. Increases your anxiety, blah, blah, blah. I think that's a bunch of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> blah. I, think, I think they miss one of the biggest reasons why people will kind of tear up when they're on an airplane. They're leaving right. loved ones. Uh, yeah, there's some, yeah, that's part of it. I think they do mention uh, that yeah, everybody's circumstances might be different. You know, they, these may be people going to or coming from a funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be uh, they just have broken up with a long time you know in, in a long-time relationship i think um, the drink yeah. has a lot to do with it though they do hit on that and uh yeah who doesn't enjoy a beverage on a, on a flight as long as you're not I mean, wait, not everybody's yeah. as entitled and privileged as you i don't have to be in business class all the time come on oh I well purchase, you can still I purchase, buy it in the, I definitely uh, the economy a, <laughs> me too beverages in the back of the plane too <laughs> well they don't come through frequent enough and allow me to purchase enough to have any effect on me if you hit that bag. call button they come back no, no, you get up when the standby passenger i would off, never do that and say hey no, as a standby passenger, I'd never do that. You're just not persistent enough, Dana. No, <laughs> there's a will, there's a way. If there's a will, there is a way. Yeah, I always ask for three drinks. I like I don't want to there talk you to you. Can I just have three? <laughs> right. Yeah. Can you give me every bottle of wine that you have in that yeah. drawer thing right yeah. there? Thank I know you. they're small, so I'm gonna need I won't, I won't have to trouble you again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dana, just stick around us. We know how to do this. <laughs> oh, but believe me, there's been plenty of times I've been in business in first class that they'd come back to me and sorry, sir, we don't have any more of that available <laughs> because I drank it all. Yeah. yeah. Well, that used yeah, to be the case with IPAs when, when uh, airlines first started serving IPAs on flights, they would have like a limited number of them. And they'd be like, oh, let me check and see. And then there'd be yeah. two. And I'm like, can I have both? Please? I'll do the just, one. Yeah. Over here before anyone else takes them. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I'll never forget when I was flying back from Vienna to Atlanta, sitting in business class, and the liquor Nazi flight attendant said, You've had nine drinks. 
I said, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's an 11 hour flight and I've only hit one per hour. What is your point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I told joking. the younger flight attendants that when they came by and asked me if I wanted anything. So by the time we were just about over in the New York area. So by the time we had an hour and 40 ish minutes left flying between that point until the time we landed. Oh, I was completely and totally intoxicated. <laughs> they made sure of that. You had a nice flight. Yeah. Were you crying at the end? I was. I was I was crying. I was I was very emotional. (laughs) All right. Well, uh thank you Captain Captain Nick for (laughs) (laughs) that. I'm sorry, I'd already skipped to the next one. (laughs) I'm going to go to uh, eight. We're kind of skipping around now because uh, we're getting close to the end of the show, and I want to get some of these in. And I I just I'm going to say one more thing. When it comes time for that flight that I'm intending on being on, if I can, much later next year, when Captain Nick reaches his 65th birthday and he retires, and I hopefully be on that flight, I'll cry. Mm, tears well, of joy. I'll, I'll be sure to make you cry, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> you that big bloke, stick him in the smallest seat we've got. <laughs> I'm going joke. Dana, did you purposely turn off your camera? I did because I'm sitting here eating sushi. Oh, okay. I don't want everybody seeing me eating sushi. Oh, we my, hear you. My, that, uh, we my beautiful bride. <laughs> my beautiful bride was nice enough to bring home dinner. So I am enjoying it while we're podcasting. Okay. Very good. Uh, eight. George, the host of the incredibly popular uh, aviation podcast, Ready for Takeoff podcast, sent us this. Hi, Jeff. Great episode as usual. While I'll, and he's talking about episode 30, 344. While I'll, I always love a beaver reference, you missed a great opportunity. <laughs> Let me try this again. La, 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 la. Great episode, as usual. While I always love a beaver reference, you missed a great opportunity to title the episode relating to the Singapore-Newark flight. Mine is longer than yours. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I I did. That's That's what she said. Regarding pilot-controlled lighting, about 20 years ago, I was conducting actual airplane training in the 727 at about 0300, uh, 3 o'clock in the morning at Pueblo. The tower had closed and had given us carte blanche to do a our touch and goes on whatever runway we wanted since the winds were calm we did multiple touch and goes in opposite directions on the same runway with 90 to 270 degree turns controlling the light controlling the lighting ourselves on one of the landings in the flare the timer expired and the runway went totally black of course we went around you can Can always go around. All right. Uh, one more runway disappearing story. About 40 years ago, I was flying a T-39 from Yokota Air Base in Japan to Kadena in Okinawa. That was pretty close to the stage length limit on the T-39, but we didn't need a whole lot of fuel for alternates since there are numerous other airports in Okinawa. It was just past dusk, very dark, and we were about we were on about a three-mile final to runway five right. Suddenly, every light on the entire island went out. Uh, in a very faint voice, I heard, this is Kadena Tower on backup power. Uh, 
The whole island has lost power. If you can see any runway, you are cleared to land. <laughs> oh, <God>. the, <laughs> the closest runway or the closest airport that wasn't on Okinawa was Kagoshima. Kagoshima, I guess, about 400 miles away. Not good. Then I remembered something I'd learned in our, avi- our aviation physiology class in pilot training. The eyes and night vision are extremely sensitive to oxygen level. I put on my quick donning oxygen mask, took a few deep breaths, and it looked like someone had just turned up the ambient light. I could see the runway and was able to safely land. And I got to stay at Kadena for another two days. Well, good story, yeah, George. For that. Good, good thinking, <laughs> yeah. too, on the... Uh... You know, a little bit of extra oxygen. Good. Yeah. yeah good aviation physiological knowledge mm-hmm. that you had there came in handy. For sure. Yeah. Of course, so, night vision goggles would have been better, but well, Well, you know. Yeah. Well, equipment limitations. <laughs> yeah. Back uh, back in the day. I don't know if they 40, had those. 40 years ago. Yeah. George yeah. is pretty old, isn't he? i didn't say that george that was captain Um, from one old pilot to another i suppose hey by the way uh the ready for takeoff podcast he's already up to episode 232 Mm -hmm. wow yeah he's cranking them out so uh, if you haven't listened to his show you you really do need to this is excellent thank you george uh and in addition to being a podcast host he's also a, a book uh, author as well oh. um and a great pilot according to him no i'm just kidding <laughs> i don't know why i said no that. one else's opinion that? <laughs> like, when he's on oxygen <laughs> if you well at least he's got good vision then so yeah absolutely john john brown sent Body us lies um, are rolling in the grave sorry <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Here we go. Wow. We're going to play some audio <laughs> feedback. Here we go. Wow. <laughs> Hello, APG crew and community. This is John Brown from uh, Canada, Toronto area. And uh, not in a bar this morning, but it's Eggsmart Breakfast Place, just along the road from uh, Buttonville Municipal Airport, north of Toronto. And uh, I'm here with two lovely ladies. Uh, my wife, Brenda Scott, and the lovely Liz Piper. Now, we just had a city tour around the CN Tower twice. And uh, I'm going to hand it over to Liz to uh, just get her impressions of what she thought of the flight. Thanks, John. Well, what a delightful surprise last night when the phone rang and it was John. I was kind of dopey when he said who it was. It took me a minute, but what a great invitation to come out today and fly. And I'm so glad Brenda came along, too. So um, I drove up. It's very handy for me. I drove up. It only took me about 20 minutes to come up and meet John, who brought his plane down from where he keeps it. And Brenda drove here. And uh, the original plan was to go a little bit north of the city. But I'm so grateful John is a very careful flyer. And he checked all the weather out. And it looked a little bit iffy. So we um, took, as John said, a city tour. And it was just great. John's plane is I just am very impressed with it, and he is a very meticulous pilot, and Brenda's a great co-pilot, and off we went. So um, we had a great time, and we're now back down on the ground and going to enjoy some breakfast. So thanks so much to John and Brenda for a great morning. I'm chuckling because we have a two-year-old running up and down the restaurant screaming, but 
Um, so I have to I have to give you a little backstory. And yesterday, John said, "So I invited um, Liz Piper to go for a flight tomorrow." And I said, "Who's Liz Piper?" Oh, well, she's a woman I met. I said, "You're taking another woman flying, and you didn't even mention it to me." Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, John. <laughs> I've had a lovely time meeting Liz today. She is a wonderful person. Uh, don't feel threatened in the least now <laughs> that we've met. <laughs> it's that wifely. If I said I was going out with another man for the day and you didn't know who it was, how would you feel about that? <laughs> anyway, we had a great time uh, doing the city tour, which I never got to do until today, even though John has been taking everybody else. Um, and uh, looking forward to having some breakfast. Back to you, John. Well, that's about it, folks. Uh, we had a little adventure, and uh, I did take uh, some movies with the GoPros and some photographs, so we'll see about getting these together and uh, maybe passing them along in due course. So, from uh, Toronto, Canada, it's goodbye from uh, John, Liz, and Brenda. Over to you, APG crew. Thanks, John. And sounds like you're in the doghouse. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Everyone he, enjoyed the uh, the morning by the sounds absolutely. of it. Absolutely. He's wearing a great hat, though. Was, yeah, there's some pictures here I'll include in the show notes. And um, it looks like Liz has brought, upon, brought along her flying goggles. Have you seen those? It does. They're, they're yeah, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right in front of Millionaire uh, FBO. in her own right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great photo. And that uh, Trinidad uh, is a sleek-looking machine. It's a very nice-looking airplane. Yeah. Actually, I, I got to fly quite a bit when I was learning to fly, and I love that French scoke. So I can't even say it. Socata. Socata. Uh, the Trinidad-Tobago. That whole genre of, of airframe is great. I love it. Very uh, good. Yeah. Very good. It's, I'm not overly familiar with it, but it looks it looks like it'd be quick say that yeah but what a it's lovely a airplane. what a lovely thing to go up and take liz for a flight i think that's absolutely brilliant yeah mm-hmm. as uh canadians are sticking together and having a good time is that because of the maple Can- syrup no it's because canadian <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's it they're sweet they people help us stick together but canadians are very nice people yes they are mm-hmm. yes they are well you know what we have a lot more uh, stuff in our feedback folder that uh, we're going to get to on the next show because I think it's getting very close to that point where we need to wrap this thing up. And uh, we're going to talk next time. Uh, Arno from Paris uh, sent us some audio feedback. And uh, John uh, mentioned something about um, pigeons uh, having to do with the plain tail and some kind of an animated movie. Um, and uh, Brett has some thing about an a340 versus a b787 which will be interesting i'm glad we didn't get to that one oh no we're not done with it yet don't worry it's yeah uh, that's gonna disappear i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna have one you're gonna have to dream about it for the next (laughs) uh, it's gonna haunt your your dreams Mm. well those pieces of feedback and more perhaps yours if you're listening right now to this episode and uh let's see if you want to send us feedback feedback at airlinepilotguide.com just a, a reminder um you know we love hearing anecdotal um 
stories about your experiences, questions that you might have, even uh, humor. You know, Ivor, we haven't heard from you or Torkin in a while, so uh, so we need to uh, uh, hear from you so we can have some entertainment from you. Uh, that kind of stuff is what we're looking for. So uh, send it to feedback at airlinepilotguide.com, or you can head over to our website, airlinepilotguide.com, and there's a place where you can contact us and send us feedback. You can also use SpeakPipe to record some audio. Uh, feedback, and you can just use your smartphone or whatever device and record feedback and just send it to the feedback uh, address. So many ways to do it. Um, again, that's the airlinepilotguide.com website where you can find more about our crew, our community, and uh, so much more. Again, that's airlinepilotguide.com, and we also have apps. Um, just on the uh, App Store on iOS or Android, just do a search for Airline Pilot Guy. And uh, it's free and it's ad free and a great way to keep in touch with the show and the community. And we're also on social media. If social media is your thing, head on over to Twitter.com and look us up using the handle at APG crew. We're all there. You can find our individual uh, Twitter accounts pinned to the top of the page for individual interaction as well. And uh, while you're at it, head over to Facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. You can feel free to post things there for the community to read and discuss. Uh, sometimes information about meetups um, appears on that page. And um if you have questions for us there, um, they will be routed to us in due course. And another great place to keep track of uh, meetups and other things going on in the community is Slack. And Hillel is the one that created it and is uh, managing the uh, Slack team for the uh, APG. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel. And I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. And until next time, all of us here wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Go Red Sox. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot. Good day.